0: This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Four. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card.
1: B-7. Oh, bingo.
0: Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics cool
2: everyone! This
3: summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made
0: to chill. Copyright 2023 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly.
4: Hey, it's Canzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more, and leave us some feedback. Away we go.
5: Initialize sequence. Welcome
4: to
3: the Bald Cast, a production of John Canzano's Baldface Truth. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Gonzano with the bald-faced truth.
0: Well, I can
4: remember all those months ago in the end of last NBA season and the run-up to the draft that we were talking a lot about Victor Wimbanyama. Ben Golliver came on this show. What did he say?
3: Well, what they need to be
6: doing
2: is blowing the wind into those lottery uh, ping-pong ball machines and praying.
6: You know, that's the only thing that's
4: going to be saving this group is getting Wembenyama. I mean, that's... That's what he said about the Blazers. Scouts were raving about him. Former players were raving about him. People were wondering, how would Victor Wembenyama handle the pressure? How would he handle the expectations? Kendrick Perkins talked about it on TV. He could possibly
5: make the All-Star team. That's how good he is, and that's how good he's going to do when it, when you look at him offensively. He reminds me of a 7-4 version of Kevin Durant. What? Are, are you throwing too much on him?
4: It's going to be a different kind of pressure, said Austin Rivers.
0: He has to be used to the pressure by now. He's been probably the most covered pre-league athlete we've had since LeBron James yep. you know what I mean and for me tonight I, I, I look forward to see how he handles the pressure mm-hmm. and I know he talks about how he hasn't felt it he's talked about how you know he hasn't succumbed to it and so far it's been pretty effortless but in a game like today you're gonna have everybody here you're gonna have all the celebrities here you're gonna have all the stars oh. out everybody's here you already talked about it being sold out you know I, I, I look forward to him as a fan you want him to have a dominant game you want him to have a statement game yeah. I try not to put too much into it it's only one game sure. but uh yeah I, I'm excited for tonight
4: Wembanyama, before he even suited up in a Spurs uniform, said uh, he he lives free. He doesn't he doesn't feel pressure. If
2: people did a create a player on 2K, or like if you asked a six year old to draw a sketch of a basketball player, right? It would they would look like you, and they would have all the skill sets you have. Do you feel pressure around that
5: that motion? No, no, you know I I don't feel any like pressure on my shoulders or what. Uh, and I think the reason is because I like, uh, I try to live free. I, I, I'm trying to be like a free minor at all times. And the way I play is just the way I want, I truly want to play, you know, and I've wanted to play my whole life. So it's just, you know, this is me. And I'm trying to show my true personality on the court and just be myself.
4: Well, Victor Wimbanyama last night uh, against the Phoenix Suns scored 38 points. He had 10 rebounds. He outplayed Kevin Durant for the second time this young season. And uh, after the game, uh, the critics or the pundits were salivating. Brian Windhorst, ESPN.
0: We've never seen anybody in the history of the game who was this big and this skilled. The combination of those two factors is huge at both ends. And on the, probably the most impressive thing about this,
7: their leading scorer, Devin Bissell, was out for the second half with a groin injury. Greg
0: Popovich called his last time out. With six minutes to go, he's on the road under assault by a great team, uh, and he he holds through, shows poise to carry his team to victory. This is unbelievable stuff for the fifth game of his career. Fifth game of his
4: career. What are we watching? Are you watching? And if you're a Blazer fan, uh, are you doing what I was doing today, going, gosh, you know, how many ping pong balls. More did the Blazers need to get Victor Wembanyama in the NBA draft lottery last year? I said at the beginning of last season they should be tanking from go. Blazers uh, won too many games, won 33 games. The Spurs had 22 wins, second worst in the NBA. Pistons probably lamenting, gosh, they only won 17 games and they didn't get enough for it. Victor Wembanyama's doing what maybe few players in NBA history have done. He's come into the league. I can remember this happened a little bit with Kevin Durant. It was different. You're watching a player who had a skill set and a size that you weren't used to. I can remember watching Shaq come into the league. He was just so physically imposing. It changed the game a little bit. And in, in Wembayama's 38.10 10 rebound night, the most impressive play for me, it's not one of his outside shots. It's not his ball handling. We've seen that through four games. But in game number five, he had a couple of times where – his teammates threw him a pass and he draws a crowd when he's anywhere near the basket and he gets a pass and he just sort of caught the ball with one hand over his head and redirected it with a pass to a driving teammate who ends up going in for a layup. I mean, it's just devastating. You can't defend him in traditional ways. I don't know what I'm really watching here. And, you know, I'm hoping like knock on wood as somebody who's covered the blazers and been around all the knee injuries, the foot injuries, the the bad luck for the big man i'm just hoping this guy stays healthy but steven what are we seeing with wemby
0: we are seeing a generational a lifetime maybe once in a uh, the history of a sport like that's how good this guy is like Coming into the NBA, it was always thought, all right, well, maybe it's the offense is going to take a little bit to get used to, but the defense is always going to be there. And he's blocking, like, over two shots a game, which is what we thought. Yeah. But now he's scoring 38 points against the Phoenix Suns. who have Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, you know, one of the better teams in the Western Conference. The Spurs just got done beating the Suns in back-to-back games in Phoenix, sweeping the little two-game series they had with them. And the Suns are one of the best teams. So we're seeing something we've never seen before. And... That's what I expected coming into the season, but even I probably didn't expect him to be this good. I mean, John, I'm trying to think of like where he is in the NBA hierarchy. Like, you could argue he's probably a top 15 player in the NBA right now at the age of 19. Like, that's how impactful he is. And I, I don't know how you guard that guy like that. Like, you talk about the plays where you, he just cuts and you pass it to him and he redirects a pass above everybody. Then he's also going to pull up three pointers in transition. Like, I don't. There's nothing. There's no. There's no. Like, good way to stop Victor Wimbanyama on that side of the ball. And then defensively, he is so good. He can guard guards. He can guard centers. He can block shots. He He's one of a kind. And I don't know that we'll ever see a guy like this again. It's impressive to watch, and it's five games into his career. Like, he's only going to get better.
4: I'm just kind of wondering yeah, a couple things. I You know, did you do what I did? I mean, are you thinking about, gosh, how close the Blazers would be yes. to getting him? Because the Spurs, this is not a great team around him. You know, they're middle-of-the-pack team in the NBA, but the
0: Spurs, you now know, um, are like two pieces away from being a team that would be pretty scary. For sure. And the Blazers, you know, the Blazers moved up in that draft lottery. You got the third pick. They had, I believe, the fifth or sixth best chance to get it. And, you know, from from reports, I believe Sean Hyken said this, on draft lottery night, the Blazers were one ping-pong ball away for getting that first overall pick. And then we would have seen it here in Portland. And the, and the whole trajectory of the Blazers would change. I imagine Dame's still on the team. I mean, think of that combination. You go Damian Lillard and Wimbanyama, like, that's a team that is actually pretty solid and a playoff team. So, I mean, they're just the unfortunate bounces of Trailblazers basketball continues. Yeah, and I think if uh, you're a Blazer fan, right, you
4: have to uh, you have to know that this is a franchise that is building. But, you know, it's just one of these moments where I'm watching the highlights of Wimben game last night, 38 points, 10 rebounds, and I'm going – that's what Greg Oden should have been. Like that's what we all thought the Blazers were getting in 2007. And maybe, you know, there was a stretch of like 30 games, 50 games, 60 games when you pieced it all together when you had Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge and Greg Oden all healthy. That Blazers trio I think was was scary good and never really flourished, never really blossomed in the way that it should have and could have. We're watching Wembyama now. Any any do you have concerns about his health? And and then a secondary thing, Shaq changed the way big men were officiated. Like I can remember the NBA officials struggling to figure out how, what was a foul, what wasn't a foul, because he was such a physical player. Does Wembenyama have that kind of impact on officiating, or is he just a super skilled, long, very unusual, you know, um, slender man in a basketball uniform? Uh, so to speak, like superhero.
0: Yeah, I think it remains to be seen because I mean, we look at a guy like Giannis who came to the NBA, he was very skinny. We got the NBA. Now he is ginormous. And he he's kinda changed the way referees have to call fouls. So I think it just depends on how Wimpanyama's body fills out as he goes along in his career. But I think, you know, for me I'm always a little worried about big men and their health. And especially a guy that is, you know, seven foot four and he is pretty thin right now. Like if he does gain a lot of weight What does that do to his body? I I don't know. You know, we've seen so many big men get hurt, whether, you know, it's here in Portland or just around the NBA or in sports. If you're just really tall, like, it's hard to keep your knees healthy. It's hard to keep your back healthy. So I I think there's always that fear that an injury will pop up with Victor Wimbanyama, but, you know, I'm not not too concerned about it because I think the Spurs are going to do everything that they can to keep him healthy, whether that means, you know, rest him a couple games or rest him some minutes here and there keep him healthy. Popovich, I don't think he's going to push him ultimately to the edge in his first couple seasons. Just, you know, he wants to get him ready to go for when they can win championships. So I I think for the referee part, it's going to be tough because he is slender and guys are going to want to beast him, right? Like you look at this guy and I would think if I'm a veteran, I don't want to get get dunked on him. I don't want to be, you know, a three hit my face. I'm going to be physical with him. And it just kind of depends. You know, refs don't give rookies a lot of foul calls. So it will be interesting to see if they continue to win, how the refs do officiate his games when guys come at him. I think, um, you know, I'm thinking about Greg Popovich too. He, he
4: loves international players. We saw him with Tony Parker, Mano Ginobili, um, Tijito Turkaloo over the years. There were just a lot of, you know, Tim Duncan, even, uh, you know, being a guy that uh, he was, you know, not from the United States. And so you look at, Wimbenyama, he's perfect for Popovich, except for one thing. He's young and Popovich is 74. Does Greg Popovich stay longer with the Spurs because Wembenyama's there or what's the plan? Because I have a hard
0: time seeing Popovich being the coach three years from now. I, that's a good question. I think I think as long as Wembenyama stays healthy, I think Popovich wants to try to win another championship with him. Because think about that, John. Like, I believe they won their first one in 99 with Tim Duncan and David Robinson. Then they won some in the 2000s. And then the 2010s, they won with Kawhi Leonard. I mean, to win in four different decades, I mean, how, I mean, you may go down as the best NBA coach of all time at that point. Like, I, I think he's going to try to see how good, how quick they can be with Victor Wimbanyama. And that would answer your question there. Is, you know, Are they a championship contender in two Okay, seasons? so that's
4: the question. Like, you, you tell me. Because I can remember back in the day, R.C. Buford, you know, GM of the Spurs, building a team that had Duncan, Ginobili, Parker. It didn't take them very long. They were already good with David Robinson before, and then they only got Duncan because Robinson was hurt. But, like, there was there was no rebuild happening there. How long does it take to get maybe a little bit more veteran help around Wemby?
0: I think, I think in two years the Spurs are legitimate championship contenders. I think he's that good in the NBA. He may be the best player at that point, and you will be able to find other veterans to fit around him. I, I think two
4: years, top twenty player right now.
0: Yeah, top twenty player right now. I think he is, and I think in two years he could be the best player in the league. And, and at that point, when you got the best player in the league, you are a legitimate championship contender. You got to build around it, and I think guys are going to want to play around him because we look at a guy like Damian Lillard, and his his you know his downfall is his defense. And you look at the Bucks defense; they're last in the NBA this year in defensive rating. Is it Dame's fault? I don't know. But at the same time, he's gonna is gonna erase a lot of those defensive failures that you have, and so I think guys are gonna want to play with him because they know that he'll have his back on that side of the ball, and then offensively he's so good. So I do think in two years, legitimately, the Spurs could be championship contenders, and that's what they kind of shot kind of be shooting for.
4: It makes me, uh, you know, it makes me kind of sad for the Blazers when you talk about it. I can't yeah. help but think about Blazer fans who would be going bonkers NBA starting uh, their mid-season tournament or in-season, in-season tournament. Yeah, I, I, I just, I guess I. I feel like the season I mean it just started. They're 5 games in with the Spurs and other teams and here we go. Here come the here come the new court designs. Here come the uh city edition uniforms. I mean, they're just selling to us. Right. I feel like, you know, somebody's going to knock on my door and try to sell me the NBA tomorrow. Like like it, it just feels a little soon, but I guess this is what Adam Silver was talking about in trying to Drum up interest, excitement, and new things. Make the early part of the season feel more important.
0: Yeah, I get. You know, it, it's on. You know, it starts on a Friday when you know Thursday night football, and then tomorrow we got college football. So there's nothing really going on on a Friday. So yeah, try to try to get some manufactured interest in this thing going on. I you know I don't quite fully get it, and I'm not fully on board yet, John. Of like actually thinking this is going to be a thing, like. I understand they're starting it and why they're doing it. They're trying to get this interest, but I'm just not interested in it. But maybe I will be by the end. Maybe when they get to the championship, I'll be all in on it. But I'm not sure how much the players actually care. Uh, I saw a quote from Bones Highland. He's on the Clippers. He's he said, "quote like I you know and I'm paraphrasing here." He's like, "I don't really fully understand what this is or what we're doing." Like I just I think that's a lot of guys. At the end. Like they just don't care about it because. They're so built to win championships like the NBA championship, not the in the NBA Cup. So maybe as we go along it gets good. You know, Silver's made some great decisions when he comes with these things. You know, the plan has been a really good thing. Uh but we'll we'll see. I, I'm not super psyched. I think the courts they look like they were made on NBA two K by some but, Yeah, I don't like it. Like some fourteen year
4: old. I don't wanna yeah.
0: say it. I don't wanna be I, the one I'll say like, it, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to say it because I don't want to sound like I was old. Well, I but... sound like I'm old then. I mean, it's the courts look terrible. Maybe they look better on TV. That's what I'm hoping for. But man, on, when you look on Twitter, it's and too you, much. It's too much. It's just. It, yeah. I don't think it, it's one of those things, John. It's like the All Star Game. It's not geared for me. It's not marketed yeah. for me. I
4: was just gonna say that I, when I go to the mall, I used to love to go into Pacific Sunwear, Pac Sun. That was my store, right? I'd go in there. They had the clothes I like to wear. They had, and then one day I walked into Pac Sun and I was like, "This isn't for me anymore." Like, this is a young man's store. This is a young person's store. I feel like these courts are the same way. They're made for, you know, they're made for, uh, you know, 18 to 34-year-olds, maybe maybe even 14 to 24-year-olds who are uh, playing video games and and excited by that kind of stuff. And, and then, like, look, I appreciate that the Blazers – you know, um, city edition jerseys, or they pay they they were a nod to Dr. Jack. I got the got the release from the Blazers yesterday morning. I posted them on Instagram. I posted it on Twitter. I just thought, you know, uh, I, I'm always ragging on the Blazers. Let me just post their uniforms. You know, this they're they're making an effort. They're doing a good thing here with the Dr. Jack sort of plaid, uh, you know, stuff on the jerseys. And then later in the day, I started looking at all the NBA's city edition uniforms, and I'm just I'm struck by the fact that the NBA is just trying to make more money all the time. Just trying to squeeze a little more merchandise, buy an extra jersey, Here's a new court. I can't wait to see how they're going to try What are they going to do? Take the court apart and sell it to the fans at the end of the tournament?
0: Do you blame the NBA or do you blame Nike? Like I feel like since Nike is making these, do we blame them at all for these designs? Like I'm a big Nike guy. I I always rip a Nike, but at the same time, these jerseys that they made, these City Editions, are not very good. The Blazers have one of the better-looking ones. Besides that, there's a lot of bad ones, I thought.
4: Yeah, I don't know. I just looked at them and I was like, I thought the Blazers did okay because it was plaid. Had a Doctor Jack sort of plaid theme to it, it you know. I get it. They went, kind of went overboard with it. But then, the, then I went onto the website, the Fanatics website, to go see, like, you know, how much are these jerseys? And the jersey that Fanatics had, the City Edition jersey, was a Damian Lillard jersey. Like, come on, clean that up. Nobody's buying that. And it was just it was kind of ridiculous to see how behind the times they were. And I was like, uh, these are not going to sell. Like, that's not going to do well. And I get it. Like, they're probably just not updating their standard. Here, who's the star player in Portland? Whose jersey would you put on there if you were Fanatics?
0: I mean, it's got to be. I mean, Shaden Sharp? Probably Shaden Sharp, yeah. I mean, Anthony Simons. It'd be somebody, Sharper yeah. Simons, I think, at this point. And I think Shaden Sharp would be the, the higher selling one just because he's even younger than Anthony Simons is.
4: Anna keeps asking me this question. I don't really have the answer for this. And maybe I can lean onto you for this or our, our callers for this. But. You know, she said she pointed this out. We were watching Last Chance You, okay, and the you know she was she gets into the documentaries because she's more of a documentary maker. Like she's she's made them before. She understands them. She did this documentary on soldiers who were coming home from war who had uh, you know were w amputees who had lost multiple limbs. She went to Walter Reed and did this you know documentary called Casualties of War, right? So. She understands, like, the painstaking process and the challenge in telling a big story. So we're watching Last Chance You, and she asks me, as we're watching this thing about all these second-chance players, and she says, you know, I don't have a sense of, like, the difference between these guys on a community college team who were, like, super good, like, nationally ranked junior college players and maybe a college team. And then she asked me the same question the other day. She said, you know, the Blazers— you know, because she she asked me how many games are the Blazers going to win this year, and I said they're going to win like 27, and she says like, but they're in they have NBA players, and I said yeah, and she says but and their salary is commensurate with like what the other teams are spending, like it's within range, and I said yes, and she says well then how can one roster in the league be that deficient relative to like the Warriors or one of the top teams in the league, and and she says is there that big a difference between the talent level on the top teams in the league and the bottom teams in the league. And I said, there actually is that big a difference. I said, the Blazers have a top 50 player, but the problem is it's number 50. And so, you know, the other 49 players in the league are better than the Blazers' best player. And some of those teams have two of them or three of them. And some of those teams, you know, the Blazers' fifth player might be, you know, player number 170, you know, like it's it's there is a big drop off how much talent differential steven do you see or how would you answer that ask, answer that question if anna said to you is there really that big of a talent gap between a top nba team and like a
0: team that we think is going to go to the lottery there's a lot i i think the best way i can describe it john is i think there's probably about seven or eight guys in the nba who really can be your best player and win a championship After that, like, they're all really good players, and they aren't good enough to win a championship. I I think that's kind of where you're at. Like, you look at the Celtics, I think Jason Tatum's, like, right on that line. Like, is he good enough to be the best player on a championship team? Probably, but we don't know that. He's also struggled in the NBA Finals. Maybe he's not that guy. So I think that's why when Dame got traded, it's one of those things, like, it's so hard to get that elite superstar player that is well-respected by all the players and can make big time shots. That's why it's hard to trade that guy because it's hard to find those players. And I think in the NBA, it is so so few of those guys in the league that you can say, all right, this is a best player on the best team in the league. Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, uh, Giannis—like those are the guys that can win championships. And you know, LeBron's probably not even that section anymore. Like he might be too old. I, I don't know. So I, it, I would say yes, the talent from you know team one to team fifteen is huge in the NBA because it's just the high-end talent is so hard to find and those guys are just so yeah. good. So are you
4: telling me that if you don't have a top seven player, you've got no shot?
0: Yeah, no shot to win a championship.
4: No shot to win at all. No shot. And and, and is there a way that Adam Silver's league, while he's busy, you know, repainting the courts and selling City Edition jerseys, is there a way that the commissioner of the NBA might sort of uh, bring the game To a place like in the NFL, we don't have that. Like, we don't. Like, you might have it in a given season, but I watched the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Tennessee Titans play a game last night. wasn't a great game, but I watched them play a game where I went, these teams have relatively about the same amount of talent. This is going to come down to making plays and coaching.
0: Yeah, it's, it's lesser than it has been. Like, it used to be way worse in the NBA when we go back to, like, the super teams era. Like, you needed two or three guys to win a championship. I don't think you necessarily need that anymore. The game has evolved where even last year you look at the Nuggets. Nikola Jokic is by far the best player after that. Jamal Murray's maybe an all-star, and that's it. Like, they have a lot of role players. So I think it's less than it used to be, but no. Like, you still need that upper echelon star. It doesn't matter how many really good players you have on your team – you need that one go-to guy to be the alpha of your team. And I, I, the easiest way to get it, through the NBA draft. And that's why that's why you know you were on it, I was on it. The Blazers needed to tank the last couple seasons, try to get that guy. You hope Scoot Henderson turns into that player. You were hoping they got Victor Wimbenyama because he will be that player. Maybe he already is that player. So I, it's all through the draft for me, John. That's the way you get it, and the Blazers have done it the right way. You don't trade for these players. You have to really get them and groom them and hope that they pop into those type of players. Coming up, we're going to talk
4: about the Ducks, Spencer McLaughlin. He is our Ducks insider at 750thegame.com. He'll be joining us to talk about Oregon season. Where are, where's the biggest challenge for the Ducks left on the schedule? How What is their upside this season? And uh, if you're watching the Washington-USC game and you're an Oregon fan, who should you be rooting for? I'll ask Spencer McLaughlin all of that coming up.
3: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
4: While well, the Oregon Ducks debuted in the college football playoff rankings at number six. Casey Kasem was around they should have they could have had him release those rankings at number 6 Dan Lanning. Uh let's uh, go to Spencer McLaughlin. You can read his work at 750game.com. He is our Ducks insider joining us now. What did you think? Your reaction to seeing Oregon at 6?
2: I think they got a lot of respect from the committee. I think that uh, margin of victory is, is what really put them there. You know, Colorado 42 to 6, Stanford 42 to 6, Utah 35 to six, And, you know, the starters not allowing touchdowns in any of those games defensively. I think that all makes Oregon uh, look very good and appealing in the eyes of uh, the, the committee. Uh, I heard your interview earlier this week with Dave Bartu. I imagine he was more than a little surprised uh, based on his comments. that so the Ducks came in at number six. But I think when you go on the road and, and dominate a good team like Utah, I, I think that you know raises some eyebrows as to you know what what they're capable of, and I think the committee also looked at that Washington loss and said you know they 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 them. It's not like like they lost a the football game, and that still has to matter. Results have to matter above all else, but you know the context uh, of that matters as well. And it's not you know Oregon in 2021 against Utah where they got outplayed uh, and it was like 38 to seven or whatever that disaster was in Salt Lake City and. Uh, It wasn't anything like that. I think those are, you know, two really good football teams, and I think the committee looked at them and said if they played again, Oregon could absolutely win, and Oregon could have won on that day, and Ducks have played really well since then.
4: Give me an idea of after the Washington game, Oregon looks to me like it locked in, focused, and Washington did the opposite. Do you think that's a psychological thing? Was there something physically that happened with Washington Give me an idea if you're rubbernecking on the Huskies while covering the Ducks.
2: Yeah, I I think that for the Huskies, you had the classic emotional letdown the following week against Arizona State, right? And I think there was also another psychological factor there, which was that ASU was the last team to beat them. And that's the last time Washington lost a football game. They just keep winning week after week. And I, I think that was kind of the classic case there. And, you know, I've heard from people that cover the program uh, up in Seattle, that uh, they've had the flu going around, and that you know everybody, including Michael Penix, has not been at 100%, but that they're uh, much closer to that. Penix, especially going into this week, so I think we'll, we'll get an idea uh, of whether or not that was that was causing a factor when they play USC. If they come out and play the way that I think they're going to, and, and beat the Trojans, then I think we'll know. Okay, you know they had a little emotional letdown, a little sickness going around. Not everybody's quite it a hundred percent and whatnot. And I don't think any team is completely at a hundred percent. Uh, the the Oregon aside from Noah Whittington is, is a pretty healthy football team. And that's part of the reason they're playing so well, but yeah, I mean, nobody goes through Kalen DeBoer talked about this. I think after the Stanford game that, you know, he's had undefeated seasons going back to his time at uh, Sioux Falls. And he said, there are always games like this. And and that's true. I mean, you look at, you know, the best Oregon teams, the last 15 years, the, the last one to go undefeated, and I think the first one, was, uh, you know, 2010, Michael James, Darren Thomas, and year two for Chip Kelly, they go to the national championship game. They they had a game on the road against Cal, of all teams. They won, I think, 15-13 to 13 was the final score, and they only had one offensive touchdown. They needed a Cliff Harris punt return. So, uh, you know, it's a long season. It's hard to win every single week, and... Uh, I think Washington has learned that the last couple weeks, and Stanford's been playing better, and the Cardinals could have beat them. They didn't, and and Washington was able to escape, and that, that's what great teams are able to do is when you, you're going to have those games. You know, Georgia against Missouri last year, you, you can find an example really anywhere you look when you find an undefeated season in college football. Nobody's got 12, 12 blowout wins, uh, even when playing inferior competition.
4: Spencer McLaughlin with us. You can read him at 750thegame.com. Uh, he also hosts the Locked on Ducks podcast, Locked on Pac-12. Spencer, uh, Bo Nix has been really, really good. Um, he he now faces Cal, then, uh, of course, looming uh, down the road for Oregon, USC. Uh, that That is obviously a big one. Um, you, you know, you look at the uh, Civil War game. You, uh, you look at Arizona State. Uh, what's the biggest challenge? For Knicks, and what's the biggest challenge for Oregon's team that you see remaining on the regular season schedule?
2: I, I think the best defense that they're going to face is, quietly, Arizona State. Um, you know, you got the Beavs in there. That's quality defense, no doubt about it. They've had their struggles on the road. I'm curious to see how they play against Colorado because they had their best defensive effort in Tucson against the Wildcats, but not their best offensive game plan. The weird fake field goal before the half, which I'm sure Oregon State fans are still trying to wrap their wrap their minds around. I know I am, and it just goes to show you that nobody's perfect. Jonathan Smith is a great coach, and he made a pretty uh, massive blunder in, in my view there. But uh, sometimes, unfortunately for the bees, that's the way the cookie crumbles. But I, I think that defensively, you know, for Bo Nix, that Arizona State defense, go look at the numbers, John, and everybody listening, they're good. I mean, they're, they're just straight-up good. They're the only team to have helped Washington without an offensive touchdown this year and they did so on the road and uh they they held washington state to 27 points and we know what that offense is capable of when cam ward is humming and i mean they, they just keep playing well they, they play hard i i think kenny dilliams doing a nice job with a really difficult situation down there and his defense coordinator brian ward has been given an extension and understandably so because i mean Washington State's defense has regressed, and ASU's defense is legitimately one of the four or five best in the Pac-12.
4: Spencer, uh, Dan Lanning this year, let's grade him. The Washington game, obviously, uh, probably should have took the points, could have put him in a different position. But if Oregon gets to the title game, wins the title game, makes the playoff, you know how do you evaluate Dan Lanning so far? And if he does get to the playoff, what kind of year? Where do you Where do you rank his year and the kind of job he's done? I mean, I,
2: I suppose you have to reserve an A-plus for, you know, a coach that wins a national championship. But, I mean, do you really look at Chip Kelly's coaching job in 2010 and say, I was just an A, not an A-plus? I mean, you're literally on the doorstep of winning the, winning the whole thing. So I, I think that you, you, get a, you get way above a passing grade if you get to the playoff. Um, I, I think, though, in order for the Ducks to look back and say, hey, this season had, you know, some level of success, especially with the way, you know, they're they're playing right now and the way everything has gone. Barring an injury to Bo Nix, you got to play in the Pac-12 championship game. And, and that was my expectation before the year was I would have said, you know, anything below reaching the Pac-12 title game is a disappointment. And they, they are in a great position to get there, and I think that they will. But there's still a ways to go. You still have to play on the road in the desert. We know things can get weird down there. You still have to play a rivalry game. You still have to play – Caleb Williams and USC, bad defense, but a great offense. You can do a lot of things with a great offense, and we'll see how they look against the Huskies uh, at, at home this week. So I, I think that if you get to the playoff, yeah, that that's an A, and we'll hold off the A-plus for the first Oregon coach to win a national championship. But, but I mean, it, it would be hard to not feel good if if Lanning ends up winning the, winning the Pac-12 this season.
4: Where are your concerns? If you're a Duck fan, where should you be worried?
2: converting on fourth down. I (laughs) I I mean, (laughs) I I, I don't know what else. And even that, you know, statistically on the season, Oregon's been very good on fourth down. They were just bad in that one game. I I mean, you look at the way this Ducks team has played, and, you know, they're not just playing complete football. They're playing better football each week. I I mean, look at the way they played against Texas Tech. I remember – you know, as a lot of fans do, panic texting with my brother and a friend of ours during the game, just thinking, man, is this going to be just like just an okay season? Like, is this another you know nine and three, eight and four kind of like? Is, is this just what it is? But they've just continued to play better and better football. They've cleaned up the procedural penalties. They've cleaned up the secondary. They're making better plays. They're getting after quarterbacks. I mean, everything just keeps getting better. And a lot of things are already playing at about as high of a level as you can. And that starts with Bo Nix, who is just the same player every single quarter that he takes the field this season. He's been fantastic. And, you know, you look at the numbers across the board and it reflects what, what the eye test says. And that's that you know, Oregon can run it. They can throw it. They can do the short game. They can do the mid game. They can do the downfield game. They can get after quarterbacks. They stop the run. They cover well. I mean, they got everything right now. I think they're the most complete team in the Pac-12 and the best one when they play at their best. I think the one thing that you got to ask a question about right now is, is special teams. And the special teams even have been better than last season. Ross James, the punter, I know punters don't get a lot of love on shows like this one. He's been outstanding. He is booming punts <laughs> up and down the field And Oregon was last in the conference in punting average last year. He's completely flipped the script on that. I don't have his numbers in front of me. He's been really, really good. And then the other question you have to put out there is Camden Lewis, and, you know, a guy who was so reliable last year, preseason all-conference second team, deservedly so, hits what, you know, was a game-winning kick against Texas Tech. If he misses that, Oregon loses the game most likely, and they're, you know, not able to get to the playoff. And – then the Washington game comes around. And I, I think that'd be the biggest question is if you needed a big pressure kick, whether at home or on the road to win a game, does, does Camden Lewis have, have the mental moxie to bounce back? And I hope he does. You know, it's not like he doesn't have the leg or the talent. It, it's between the ears. Cause he has struggled the last few weeks. Didn't have to kick a field goal against Utah. Didn't need field goals. It was all touchdowns, which was great. You're not going to have that every week. And eventually, you know, Uh, Like the Washington State game, an opening drive that goes down the field, derailed by penalties, got to be able to get three points out of that, and they didn't. And when you play a team like a USC or an Oregon State, you just hope that doesn't come back to bite you. So uh, I'd say the kicking game is probably the number one area where I go, it's the only area I can say I have a concern because everything else, both sides of the ball, looks really, really good.
4: All right, I'm looking this weekend, and you know Washington's at USC. Washington has a gauntlet ahead of it, you know, with Utah, yep. Oregon State, the Apple Cup, and Washington hasn't played well. But uh, I know Duck fans want another shot at Washington, but simultaneously, Duck fans would like to get to Vegas as the one seed, and who cares who they play there? They win out, they go to the title game, and uh, you know, or, or Oregon State fans are hoping uh, they win out, and maybe they get, maybe they can get to Vegas. But what do you tell people who ask you, Spencer, who should Oregon be rooting for in this USC-Washington game? Because if USC wins the game, um, it, it leaves three teams with one loss in conference play. It muddies things up. And if USC loses the game, it makes Oregon's game against USC next week maybe a little less shiny for the playoff selection committee, even, even in a win. Now, I don't know if USC's ranked. So you tell me. Who should they be rooting for
2: they should be rooting for USC and you know it sounds weird to say that especially as someone who you know laments all the conference realignment and the role that USC played there which was you know not it wasn't only them they certainly played a principal role in uh, in the demise of the Pac-12 here and there are a lot of USC fans that I think will just kind of say that out loud and you know do so proudly but I think that USC is the side to root for if you're Oregon here, because in the context of the Pac-12 championship game, nobody can stop Oregon, no matter what happens. Nobody can stop Oregon from getting to Las Vegas, because the Ducks play USC, the only other one lost Pac-12 team, so if they went out, nobody can keep them away. And so what you're then looking at is, well, how do we assure that Oregon's got the best resume possible to make sure 100% they get into the playoff. Now, the only time a one-loss Power 5 champ has ever been left out of the of the 14 playoff was Ohio State in 2018. They went on to beat Washington in the Rose Bowl game. I don't think that happens to the Pac-12 champion. I think that a one-loss Pac-12 champion, I mean, half the league is ranked right now, John. I, I don't know how a team that can go through that gauntlet with one total loss is seen as less than an ACC champ with one loss, or uh, a non-Big Ten champion, Ohio State or Michigan, or a Big Twelve champion that has one loss. And, and I mean, I, I think the Big Twelve is really, really down this year. I think Texas is going to house Kansas State because they're not that good. But I look at that and say, you want to be sure, right? I'm confident saying that one loss, Pac-12 champ, you're not, you're not keeping them out of the playoff. Do I know that for certain? No. And so if you're Oregon. You want to compile as many quality wins as you can. So if USC wins this week, then they'll go inside the top 15. If Oregon beats them, that's a top 15 win. Then you would go at Arizona State, which is a game you should win. And then you play Oregon State, which is at least going to be a top 25 win. I think Oregon State, even if they were to end the year 8-4, and four, I think they go 9-3. and three, But I, if, if they were to end the year 8-4, and four, then they should be the highest-ranked four-loss team in the country by the time the season comes to a close so then if you're the Ducks between now and the Pac-12 title game or including the Pac-12 title game if USC wins and you win out you would be adding a top 15 win a top 25 win and a top 10 win against Washington or or USC again maybe but probably Washington because Oregon would beat USC to give them their second conference loss next week I don't think there's enough I don't think there's a resume that's going to beat that coming down
4: the stretch Spencer I appreciate you is Cal a threat on the way out like Cal has scored better than they had in previous years their defense hasn't been quite as good played USC to the mattresses last week should you be worried at all about Cal
2: you know what Cal is John they're they're Rory McElroy if he suddenly made putts and couldn't hit a fairway <laughs> like that that's what they've become because for years it was well they can't score. But they're not going to let you score very much now. It's hey, they can score points, and it's oh, they can't stop anybody. Over forty-five points a game allowed over their last three to the Bees, USC, and uh, and Utah in there. And, and we saw that Utah's offense certainly has a ceiling this year with Bryson Barnes. They put up thirty-four on this Cal defense. I, I can't see Oregon, you know, barring the weather getting really, really wacky, being held under forty points in, in this game. I think Cal's offense has got some pieces. Jay Knott, Jeremiah Hunter, with Fernando Mendoza at quarterback, good players, solid. They're productive, but I don't think Cal's defense can do enough to to, to slow down Oregon. I think they're playing at too high a level right now.
4: Spencer McLaughlin, he is our Ducks insider. You can read him at 750thegame.com. Leave it here. Our big splash is coming up.
3: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
4: Anna brings the kids home from school and they are like fired up coming out of school. They are. Uh, they grabbed a basketball out of the garage today. They went out and started shooting baskets. I like to see that. I don't know. Steven, uh, did you come home from school that way when you were a kid? I don't remember being all – I guess I was. I was out. I was always outside doing stuff.
0: Yeah, I feel like that was kind of what we did, right? You just got home and you played more. I don't know. I feel like I was – maybe I wasn't fired up like your kids were, but, you know, just kind of everyday thing. Like, yeah, when we get home, we're going to go play outside, play basketball. We, I, I
4: I grew up a little bit rural so we didn't have like a lot of neighborhood kids and so when I played basketball I have to play a game against myself you ever do that you ever get in the driveway and uh, imagine that you are playing against yourself you have to rebound do the play by play in
0: your head I would do that and then I, I what I also love to do is I would play uh, with a ball with myself in the backyard and I would just do all yes. the, pretend throw it in the air but pretend to be you know certain guys and try to do their stance as well.
4: I could hear the voice of Hank Greenwald ca- calling a Giants game as I would hit the baseball and round the bases my mom said years later she said she would look out from the kitchen window she could see the backyard we had kind of a field out in the backyard it wasn't really like real grass it was kind of like weeds that were mowed down and she said she would see me kicking the football uh, and then I had a stopwatch in my hand and I would be measuring my hang time <laughs> so I did apparently I did that for hours I don't know I don't, I don't remember it all. Uh, that brings us to our Big Splash. It's the one thing you need to know today.
5: This is the Big Splash.
3: Brought to you by Killer Burger. Voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger's 10 rad burger builds will send your taste buds on an epic journey. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about
4: we got a big remote broadcast coming up at Killer Burger in West Lynn coming up on November 14th. I'll tell you more about it as it approaches. But Colorado has stripped offensive coordinator Sean Lewis of his offensive play-calling duties. The, the Buffaloes are elevating analyst Pat Shermer, who is Chip Kelly's coordinator with the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, elema- elevating Shermer to an on-field role where he'll take over as the play-caller. This is wild. Lewis. Was Colorado's offensive head coach. Well, now they're going to be co offensive coordinators. Adam Rittenberg reporting this. And they're going to have to take an on field assistant and remove that person to make room for Shermer on the staff. Um, former NFL head coach, 20 years' experience in the pros. Shermer came to Colorado this summer to work for Deion Sanders. But um, the change in play callers comes just. Uh, you know, days after Colorado expressed frustration with the offensive line. That'll fix it. And, you know, uh, obviously Coach Prime uh, looking for an answer here. It feels to me, I'm just reading the tea leaves. I have no inside intel here. But it just feels to me that maybe there was some kind of flare-up between Sean Lewis and Coach Prime. And Shador Sanders was sacked seven times last week against UCLA. Really good defensive team. Hit 17 other times. Knocked down 13 times. Colorado failed to score a touchdown until late in the fourth quarter. Buffalo's had only 25 rushing yards and 242 yards total. Uh, apparently, something wrong uh, in Boulder.
5: The line, the line has improved. It ain't no aspect. The line has improved. About pass a lot. Yeah. I think it was up until that last drive you had made seven carries with running back, You had like 34 passes. Yeah. How how much is the, of that is a struggle for you guys right now? Because well, it's, it's a, a struggle to run the ball. It's a struggle to run the ball. And well, we we got to figure figure that out because now you're, you're one-dimensional, and it's easy to stop a team when they're one-dimensional, and that's who we are at this point in time. Could
0: follow up on that. Being able to commit to that as you talked about running
5: Commit the day, to what?
0: Running
5: that I think we committed to it on a first down and we was second and 15. Those are the type of things you don't want to do and get behind the eight ball. First downs are so vital. First downs are everything. I mean, first downs are when we held them um, statistically on first downs, it was hard for them to move the ball as well. And uh, when we're getting negative yards on first down, that's a tremendous loss. Because now you know you're going to throw the ball on second down, and they're, they're calling their defenses pertaining to that loss. I just asked
0: that in terms of the big picture, trying to keep Shadur upright healthy.
4: The
5: big picture, you go get new linemen. That's the picture. And I'm going to paint it perfectly.
4: Look, Deion Sanders going now to get a new play caller. Now Talking before that about going to get new linemen. I can't decide if this is good or bad for Oregon State, because on one hand, Oregon State saw on film all it needed to see about Colorado. You don't now quite know what a Pat Schirmer coach team is going to look like. But on the other hand, at least Oregon State knows it, and it appears that there's some discord on the coaching staff. Um, we'll discuss coming up in the 4 o'clock hour uh, whether or not this is a good or bad development for the Beavers. John Wilner's going to be joining us from the San Jose Mercury News. Leave it here.
3: B F. From the PAC West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth.
4: Who's getting to Las Vegas? Who's going there? December 1st, Pac-12 championship game. Will it be a rematch of Oregon and Washington? Will USC slide in there? Beat the Huskies this weekend? Challenge the Ducks? Will it be someone else? How about Oregon State? Oregon State wins out. It could conceivably be tied with Oregon and have a head-to-head victory at the end of the season. Still a lot of ball left to play. Seven teams in the Pac-12 with two or fewer losses in conference play. And what's going on at Colorado where Sean Lewis has been demoted? He's not the play caller this weekend. I can't figure out if that's good or bad for Oregon State. I'll tell you what Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach, is doing. No matter what, he's looking at this as a potential hiccup that he didn't need. I can remember that right before last year's Civil War game. Remember there was some confusion about whether Bo Nix would play, not play, And all of a sudden, the point spread right before the Oregon State-Oregon kickoff suddenly changed by like three, four, five points. Jonathan Smith came over to me at the game, on the sideline, before kickoff. And he said, hey, uh, what happened? Why did the spread change? He didn't like it. He didn't like not knowing what was going on. And I think coaches are control freaks. And Coach Prime demoting... Sean Lewis from play caller and giving the keys on offense to Pat Shermer, this could be good for Oregon State in that there may be some chaos and you know the, there's some discord on the coaching staff. I don't know, or it could be really bad. Like all of a sudden, Oregon State doesn't right quite know who to prepare for, or how to prepare on Saturday night. John Wilner, San Jose Mercury News, he's the best. You can find his work at Pac-12Hotline.com. Joining us now, how would you read that? The demotion of Sean Lewis. Uh, As Colorado's play caller
7: You know Sean Lewis Is very well respected As an offensive line in college football And I you know I'm not sure I I look at Colorado and I think the biggest Problem is they got no talent on their offensive Line and it doesn't matter If Sean Lewis is calling the plays uh, You know or if It's uh, Don Coriel, You know (laughs) it's uh, The problem starts up front Right Uh, So I don't know that it's really going to matter. Oregon State gets gets pressure on the passer, stops a running game. Uh, Oregon State should win the game. But to me, I don't know that it matters all that much who's calling the plays if they can't change their line. I mean, Deion went public with how bad his offensive line was last week after the game.
4: Do you think that caused, you know, I, I immediately, like I have no inside intel, Wilner, but I saw that and I went, Oh wow! I wonder if I wonder if uh, Dion and Sean Lewis got into it over him criticizing the offensive line, because I I kind of wonder how do you expect those guys to, guys to go out and play for you while you're ripping on them?
7: Yeah, well, I don't think Dion has a whole lot of patience, you know. Uh, and it's I, sometimes I think it's hard for elite athletes, super successful athletes, to have patience for for players who aren't that talented, but. Uh, you know, Dion, pretty quick hook. I mean, they, you know, they were scoring pretty good uh, on offense until a couple of weeks ago, right? UCLA shut them down, but they scored like twenty-seven against ASU. They put up what forty-three against Stanford, most of them in the first half. And it's not like this offense has been crawling along all season. So to me, it feels like a pretty quick hook from a desperate coach, uh, and I'm not sure it's the
4: answer. John Wilner with us. You cover the Pac-12. Uh, give me an idea. Oregon fans, a little conflicted this weekend as USC and Washington are playing. What would be the best outcome for the Oregon Ducks in that game?
7: Oregon wants Washington to win every game. That to me, that's e- it's easy. Oregon wants Washington to go into the Pac-12 championship game undefeated, because if Oregon then beats the Huskies, the Ducks are in the playoff. It's that simple.
4: Do you worry that if USC loses? I guess you don't, because if Oregon Oregon controls its destiny, when the the playoff rankings came out, I went, "Wow, look at what the committee did! They put Oregon at six, they put Washington at five. Either one of those teams wins out; they're going to the playoff." Do you see it the same way?
7: I do, uh, because either Michigan or Ohio State's going to lose. I mean, even if let's just say Michigan's allowed to keep playing the season as normal and doesn't get punished. You know, the Michigan-Ohio State loser is not going to be in the Big Twelve champion, Big Ten championship game. So on championships weekend, Oregon is going to be, beat, would be beating undefeated Washington, top five Washington. And the loser of the Michigan-Ohio State game is going to be sitting at home. That's a huge advantage for the winner of the Pac-12 championship. Right? To me, that's why they would get in. Even if Florida State wins out. Uh, I think then you're looking at Florida State, Pac-12 winner, Big T- Big Ten winner, and 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 uh, Georgia, of course. To me, that's that that's it's setting up to be fairly clean. Uh, but you, you know, obviously, we never know. To me, that you know, Oregon would in that case go into the selection committee's final meeting. You know, with victories over uh, UCLA, uh, USC, uh, Oregon State. Utah, Washington, you know, that's four wins over top 25 teams. Uh, They would win, have won the conference that many consider to be the best league in the country. Uh, I just don't think they could get kept out ahead of a Big Ten division runner-up in that situation.
4: The committee in prior years has placed an emphasis on top 25 wins, quality wins, Maybe Oregon gets credit for going into Utah. Maybe that was the biggest factor in putting Oregon at six, or maybe that its loss was a three-point road loss to Washington. But Texas fans are upset. They've got a win over Alabama. What would you say to the Texas fans?
7: Well, I think I think just think the committee made it pretty clear. They are very impressed with how Oregon is dominating teams, uh, quality teams, how balanced Oregon looks on, on both sides of the line of scrimmage. You know, the, and also one spot really doesn't matter. I mean, it, it doesn't matter at this point, you know. Uh, I think that's that's the biggest thing is the committee's got – they'll do whatever they want in the end, right? They, they have – their job is to decide how – they define how they're picking the teams. They could go with the best teams. They could go with the most deserving. Uh, I don't think Texas fans, you know, uh, have a whole lot of room to, to grumble uh, given the way Oregon has played.
4: We are closing in on the you know November 14th uh, court date. It'll be a Tuesday in uh, in Colfax and of course Washington State and Oregon State trying to figure out what they can get yesterday you got the 10 schools in the PAC 12 uh, writing a letter or issue you know filing a, uh, uh, a brief with the court. Um, how do you see this argument right now in your mind what 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 is the latest on this and what do you expect on the 14th?
7: Yeah, I read through the whole the whole filing and boy, it almost put me to sleep. I mean, they re- they are relying heavily on uh, parsing the terms of the bylaws, you know, whereas Oregon State and Washington State are relying heavily on action <laughs> and how the Pac-12 acted when the various schools said they were leaving and removing those schools from the from the board. The, the 10, their, their argument is just based on uh, a legal reading of the bylaws. I don't think it's, you know, uh, I think the action is, is far more convincing evidence than, than some kind of interpretation of, of the, the section in the bylaws about withdrawal. So uh, I, I think Oregon State and Washington State have got a, a really good case. They're playing. They have home court advantage, you know, pun intended. Uh, we'll see if they get a settlement beforehand. I can't imagine the 10 want uh, a judge in Colfax, Washington, deciding the fate of a lot of money. Uh, so they may settle, who knows, maybe somebody will try to file a uh, temporary restraining order in a different state to get this thing stocked before the judge rules. Uh, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. You know, what do we got? Two weeks, basically, at this point. Yeah. Less than two weeks.
4: Less than two weeks. A week from Tuesday. Uh, you're down to about two yeah, days. Yeah, lots going to so. happen.
7: I think. A yeah. Lots to Universal- happen behind the scenes. I would imagine.
4: Michigan just a few minutes ago fired Connor Stallions, the recruiting analyst that was at this is who was at the center of that um, you know scouting scandal, I guess that is going on. Um, how does Michigan? in that scandal factor in what the playoff might do in your mind?
7: Well, it's interesting because the playoff on Tuesday when they released the rankings in the interviews afterwards with, with the executive director of the CFP and the chair of the selection committee, they completely dismissed the whole Michigan thing. Oh, and they said, oh, it's an NCAA issue, not a CFP issue. Well, I totally disagree with that. This is a, fact, it's a competitive advantage for Michigan that is impacting how they are playing on a week-to-week basis and what their success is. Obviously, if you know the other team's signs, you have a huge advantage. I don't think the CFP can be uh, so naive as to think this isn't going to be a, a very big issue for them down the stretch as they try to decide Michigan's fate, uh, assuming the Wolverines finish the season either with you know zero losses or one loss and they're in the playoff hunt. You know, it's it's has been a competitive advantage for them. I don't, the CFP cannot stick their head in the ground uh, and hope it goes away. It's not going to go away. It's just going to get worse. The, the scrutiny is just going to get worse. So it'll be real interesting to see how it plays out and whether the Big Ten takes action, right? The Big Ten schools, every other oh, – there's 13 schools that are pissed off. And uh, the commissioner is under huge pressure. But on the other hand, Fox is paying, you know – $350 million a year to broadcast Big Ten games, and that includes a championship. So Fox is going to want Michigan, if they're undefeated, in the Big Ten championship game. It's going to be awfully hard for the commissioner to, to go against Fox's wishes and ban the Wolverines from the title game if they, if they qualify. It's a fascinating situation.
4: On November 11th, Fox will air both the Utah-Washington game and USC-Oregon. Kickoff times are TBD at this point. Six-day window being exercised by Fox. The early window is either 12.30 or 4 o'clock Pacific time, and the late window is 7.30. You broke it down today, but I want you to share with our listeners, like, what do you think will factor in the decision USC, Oregon, and that kickoff time? Is it going to be an early kick or a late kick?
7: Well, I mean, my gut is that if USC beats Washington, uh, on saturday that usc oregon will be the earlier uh, kick right those are two you know if you're if you're judging those three time slots based on value to fox obviously the the four o'clock is primetime east coast that's number one uh 12 pacific is is probably number two and then seven thirty pacific is number three so to me if usc wins and USC shows up in Eugene and they're, like, 12th or 15th and Ducks are, you know, top five, that game is going to be on prime time. That game would be on at 4 o'clock. Worst case, it's on at 1230. Uh, If USC loses to Washington, then it's a little bit more, uh, I think, of a tough decision for Fox. And they have to take into account the other games that they have, which includes Big 12, right? There's two Big 12 games that are valuable that week, right? Texas. And Oklahoma both are playing. Both are top ten. So how do they want to – where do they want to put that game, uh, whichever those two they have, where do they want to put that? And also, what is ESPN doing? Right, Fox isn't going to want to put Texas up against ESPN if ESPN is Oklahoma. So it's, it's not – they don't judge the Pac-12 situation in a vacuum. They have to judge it based on what their options are, and that includes what ESPN's doing with its Big 12 game.
4: Willner, uh, this That's season, complicated, no, it's complicated com- answer, but it, it's a complicated system. No, but it's as simple as you know, Fox is going to put the better game earlier, right? Like you would think. So if USC wins. There's a lot of interest in USC, Oregon on November 11th. They're not going to stick that game in the 7 p.m., or 7.30 p.m. window.
7: No, no, they're not. That'll be one of the two-day games. The interesting thing is, you know, that 7.30 Pacific window on the Fox Broadcast Network, they haven't done that very much. They did, they've did. done it with Stanford-USC uh, the last two or three years, that early season conference game. That has usually been on Fox Broadcast at 7.30. And they did it one other time for a USC fresno state game but i've always thought that's a pretty valuable window for them what what else is fox putting on over the air you know big fox what's going on uh what have they have saturday night that's going to be uh, a good college football game they got nothing they should be using that window more often
4: yeah and i think it'll be interesting to see too who do you think is going to win that that usc washington game
7: I don't know. I think it's it's possible to be last possession of wins. I pick Washington. I think it's a three point line or something, but you know, first team to forty five. Really, I think uh, I think Washington. Both teams. If you if you figure the offenses are about equal, I think Washington's defense is a little bit better than USC's. But that only means it's okay because USC's defense is bad. Right. That's that's the thing. You got a bad defense against an okay defense.
4: Yeah, and I think uh, I'm I'm curious to see what Michael Penix Jr. will look like. And I, I felt like leaving the Oregon game, he didn't look right against Arizona State. He didn't look right against Stanford. Do you see something wrong with Penix, or is this just kind of a, we're in the part of the season where defenses have adjusted and maybe there was an emotional letdown after beating Oregon? Do you think it's a health thing, or do you think Penix is fine?
7: I'd say it's all those things you mentioned. I think the Huskies... To me, they have looked a little bit bored. You know, they beat Oregon in that huge game, and then they play two teams that they're and they're favored by four touchdowns over both. So I think they looked a little bored. I think defenses are adjusting a little bit, and also Pennex looked. Uh, you know, he looked hurt at the end of the Oregon game. Right, he was grabbing his ribcage. Yeah. He took yeah. some punishment. So I think that's possible. And also, he was sick. Uh, I was at the Washington Stanford game, and in the post post game uh, interview room, you could just tell by the sound of his voice that he was sick, and I think that the flu basically blasted through Washington's uh, locker room last week, and that certainly had an impact on how a lot of guys played, but I don't know. I'm assuming he's over the illness, but I don't know what the state of his you know, ribs are or any oblique, whatever got hit, hurt against the Oregon.
4: Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting to see it against USC who is still in this thing, Um, look, there's seven teams with two losses or or less. If it's not Oregon-Washington, give me two other teams you could see sneaking into Vegas and playing for the championship. If you eliminate those as possibilities.
2: Oof,
7: boy. Uh, Okay, I would take Oregon Uh, State-UCLA. I think the Bruins are not – they're not great off they've changed identities from last year, right? They're not that good on offense, but they have a very good defense and a very good front seven and they don't play, uh, Oregon or Washington. Right. So if, if they can get, get through Arizona this week, uh, you know, I think that UCLA has got a real shot to be in this thing with two losses. Uh, and then Oregon state also, right. Uh, they got to get through. I think Colorado could be a little bit tougher game than than they think, but uh, I would pick those two. I just don't know about Utah because they got so many guys hurt and the quarterback situation is tough.
4: Yeah, really rough. John Wilner, you're the best. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, get some rest. You got a big uh, Saturday ahead, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thanks, my friend. All right, there he goes the co-host of Conzano and Wilner, the podcast. Love talking with him. I know he's on fumes. It's that point of the season. Um, he picked UCLA and Oregon State. I would I would pick, if I'm going to pick, if you tell me Oregon and Washington, I can't have them, I and I get two other choices of teams that could potentially make the Pac-12 championship game, I would pick USC and Oregon State because I think USC's got control of its destiny. In that it's going to play Washington, it's going to play Oregon, win those two games, and USC's you know right there, shoulder to shoulder with Oregon, uh, excuse me, with Washington, and it's in front of Oregon.
0: What about and, uh, what about Arizona, John? They have two losses yeah. in the Pac-12. They play UCLA, which is going to be tough, but it's at home yeah. this week. Then it's at Colorado, at home against Utah again, at home, and then at Arizona State. The schedule's not too tough yeah. for Arizona going down the
1: stretch.
4: Arizona and and UCLA have the benefit of not playing Oregon and Washington down the stretch. And UCLA does not play Oregon and Washington at all in the season. And Arizona doesn't have anybody in front of them. So, yeah, Arizona and UCLA could you – Yeah, know, Arizona was my pick early in the year to be a spoiler. I thought they could finish in the top six. They could be a surprise. And, and UCLA, though, UCLA's good, not great. They're just good. And they don't play Oregon and Washington. It's It's a really weird dynamic. I kind of think it would be a shame if UCLA got to the title game because they had, they wouldn't have to play played anybody. You know, we got to beat USC in the rivalry game. That's it, to get in there. Uh, Anna's coming up. Uh, we'll also play some punch and audio, the 5 at 5, and then Big Sky Conference Commissioner Tom Wistersill will be with us. He's on all sorts of NCAA committees. We're going to talk to him about the state of things in college athletics plus what's going on in the Big Sky Conference. That's all ahead in the 5 o'clock hour. Leave it here.
3: to The Bald-Faced Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
4: Well, we've got a uh, remote broadcast uh, coming up November 17th. Mark your calendars. This radio show will be on the road on that Friday. We'll be in uh, in West Lynn at the Killer Burger location in West Lynn on Friday, November 17th. Anna, will you be at the Killer Burger with me on Friday, November 17th?
1: Uh, you had me at Burger. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there. If uh, listeners yeah. want to hear what it sounds like for me to eat and talk I, simultaneously. I
4: hear what it sounds like or see what it looks like oh yeah come say hi come by the location oh
1: yeah that friday
4: 3 to 6 p.m don't come by at 601 okay (laughs) somebody tried to do that on the last remote we were out of milwaukee lumber got a call right at the end caller called in said i'm on my way there headed to the remote that milwaukee lumber closed you know (laughs) (laughs) i was like "You're, you're gonna find an empty parking lot um but uh, we had a lot of fun at the Milwaukee Lumber Remote. We're going back on the road November 17th on that Friday and we will be at uh at the Killer Burger. Looks the like
1: Killer Burger. That's what I call it. The Fred Meyer. It's the burger
4: your mama warned you about, okay? Mm-hmm. We'll be there. I always like listeners that come by. I may not be able to have a long conversation while I'm on air. <laughs> Understand if I have my headset on, I have a microphone in front of me and I'm chatting. I'm that's not a good time to have a big conversation, but we know what I can do. I can fist bump you, and uh, you can pick up some swag. We'll have a whole bunch of giveaways and swag. It'll be fun. You can get a burger and a beer, and whatever, or if you're not 21, you can't get a beer, but if, you can, if you're if you 21, you can get a beer, and you can have a good time at Killer Burger. All right, uh, that's coming up. That's on the horizon, okay, so to speak. Um, Anna, I, I touched on this, I think, two days ago on the show. Yes. And uh, I want to revisit it because I I kind of talked about it without you being part of the conversation. Okay. Your father is Taiwanese. Yeah. He was born in Taiwan.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: He's lived in Taiwan.
1: Yeah. For,
4: listeners will remember just a couple of few months ago you went and you flew over to Taiwan and you brought him back. Yeah. His, his wife passed away and he wasn't doing well. And it's one of those things where I think if you had left him there, you would have died of a broken heart. Mm-hmm. And instead, you did a good thing. You kidnapped him and you brought him back to the United States of America. And we have a 77 year old Taiwanese man living in our home. Yeah, he he mostly kind of shuffles around. Mm-hmm. He's found the senior center. He walks to the senior center. He plays uh, ping pong. He does aerobics. He plays mahjong. What is mahjong? He he talks it's about like
1: it. Chinese bridge, sort of. You okay. Know? Yeah.
4: He's playing that. And uh, probably has an advantage at it. Maybe he's making money. I don't know. But um, he's also, we've introduced him to some new things. And he keeps telling me this. Yeah. By the way, Stephen, he also thinks I'm perfect. He's said that numerous times. He'll look at me and he'll just say, perfect. And I say, thank you. It's good for my Sounds self-esteem. Sounds like Anna really likes that part. <laughs> yeah. It's good for my esteem. Cue, cue the eye roll. He'll do a thumbs up and he'll go, perfect. Yeah. It's
1: uh, John's his, biggest fan.
4: And his, his other thing is, if we uh, if you put food in front of him, he'll say, plenty. <laughs> That's his other thing. And so, you know, we start doing that now. Anytime somebody puts in front of me, I go, plenty. <laughs> so he I don't know if he's figured it out. I think he, think he has.
1: I think he's catching on that we really so, like it. He just, he just has certain catchphrases. He also calls you a genius. Yeah. That's real fun. Yeah. Yeah, Jeez. keep him around. Uh-huh. He ain't
4: no dummy. Yeah. <laughs> he ain't no dummy. He's like, you know what? I'm welcome here. Uh, but here's the other thing: like, we introduced him to college football. Yes, he had never been to a college football game. We took him to the Oregon State Utah game. We put him right there, right behind the Utah bench, and let him watch a college football game. And afterwards, I said, "Well, what do you think?" And he he was like, "All oh, these people." uh organized together like all cheering together like you know he he really was impressed really mystified (laughs) by like
1: the third down thing the arm thing that the beavers fans do (laughs) on third down
4: yeah and and then you took him to the portland state game last weekend
1: time at that game yeah yeah
4: he's a and he told me after because i wasn't there i was traveling and uh i was at the uh yeah i don't know where i was oregon utah (laughs) i was at oregon utah and he said to me when I saw him on Sunday, he says, uh, hey, uh, went to another college football game. <laughs> really good game. And he said, the Portland State, lots of points. Lot, good offense. <laughs> he's you know? not, He's not wrong. Um, so the other new thing that we've introduced him to is some American traditions and customs. And one of them is Halloween. Do they not celebrate Halloween in nope. Taiwan?
1: Nope. Nope. They don't get it. Mm-mm. They he... don't dress up for it, they don't understand it, He th- they think it's very strange that we celebrate it.
4: That trick-or-treaters go door-to-door, Yes. knock on people's doors, hold their bags open and say trick-or-treat, <laughs> and you're expected to put a delicious candy in their bag.
1: Like when you really break it down, Halloween is kind of a strange holiday that uh, some of us... Go really crazy about, you know, yep. with decorations and what We had
4: a lot of decorations in our front yard. But, Boy, um, did we. He um. So on Halloween night, we were leaving to go trick-or-treating with the two younger daughters. They're seven and nine. And your dad, suddenly I realized like five minutes before we were leaving, your dad was going to be home alone. And it was high time, high traffic time for trick-or-treaters. Mm-hmm. It was going to fall on your dad to have to be the point person. Yep. And he'd never done Halloween before. Yeah. So, Stephen, I know you and I kind of bantered about this, but what happened was we're going out the door, and I said, to Diana, like, you got to tell him people are going to knock on the door, they're going to say trick-or-treat, and he's to take one full-size candy bar <laughs> and drop a candy bar into each of these bags for these people. Give them one candy bar. Mm-hmm. Don't give them the whole bowl. right. These are full-sizers here. We went big, all right? He had the baby Ruth. He had the three Musketeers. He had the Snickers, the Reese's, the Butterfingers, one candy bar. He seemed delighted, by the way, that he had a bowl of candy bars mm-hmm. right next to him. Yep. We even put a chair for him by the front door. So as we're leaving, I thought eh, I still was a little uneasy about it because I was like, is he going to hear the door? <laughs> is he going to not open it and a bunch of kids are going to be pissed at us? Um, is he going to know what to do? So first group of trick-or-treaters, I can see them on the cameras on my phone. They're coming up the walkway, and I go, here we go. It's go time for, uh, for your dad. And uh, they knock on the door, and he's slow. First of all, he was slow to open the door. And I thought, oh, where is he? And, uh, i was already chirping at you. Your dad's not answering the door.
1: <laughs> I bet he was in the bathroom.
4: Suddenly the door opened, and I watched eight trick-or-treaters walk into our house. <laughs> he welcomed them in. Brought right, him in right into right, the foyer, right just, into the house. Just pranced right into and the house. I was house. like, no, 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 no. We got a home invasion situation going on, <laughs> like you know. And I said, they're gonna punch him in the in the mouth, and they're gonna. T-. And I was worried about his health, <laughs> his safety, and uh, but he just welcomed them all into the house. Uh-huh. And then, uh, then they left. Yeah. Then I said, with candy, with candy. But I, I wonder. It was like a long time that yeah. they were in there. Uh huh. So I was like, "He, you know, you got to tell your dad, these people don't need to come into the house. I'm not all comfortable <laughs> with that. Like, you know, stay on the porch, you know, you bandits. And so uh, he did it, though. Yeah. And then we had some leftover candy bars. This is the part I didn't tell you, Stephen, because I found this out after I got off air. Um, we had, like, we had about 50 leftover full-size candy so bars. So much
1: leftover candy.
4: Really? I was looking for them today, by the way. I I couldn't find them. I know. Where did you do with them?
1: They're in the cupboard.
4: No, I didn't see them. They're in the cupboard. They're in there. But I was looking for those candy bars like a crackhead today. And uh, (laughs) uh, the other night, though, I said the bowl was still left over. It was the day after Halloween. I guess it was November 1. And uh, it was after dinner. And uh, your dad was in his room, and he was watching TV. Okay, He Mm has a TV in his room. And so I went. I took the full the full bowl of candy bars and I went to his room and I knocked on the door and I came in. He was sitting in a chair watching TV. He was watching. What was he watch in like there? Like
1: Taiwanese soap operas. It
4: looked like it was. Uh, it looked like it was the Bruce Willis uh, Die Hard. It looked oh. like it was Bruce Willis movie. Okay, I don't know, but it was the, but it wasn't Bruce Willis. Yeah, it was like Asian Jackie. It was like Jackie Chan. Yeah, <laughs> it was Bruce Willis. <laughs> uh, okay, so I I walk in with the full bowl of candy bars. And he looks at me, and he waves me off, and he said, I already took some. <laughs> he, had a, he had a whole pile of them. Yeah, he has a secret stash. He took his own. Uh-huh, yeah, resourceful guy. So what did he tell you about Halloween? What were his takeaways?
1: Uh, He just thinks it's, he still thinks it's a very strange holiday. He did carve a pumpkin with us. That was a first at 77 years old. And I think he had a good time. I think he's still a little bit. I don't think he really gets it. I think he's a little bit confused still at just the concept, the basic concept of it all, of getting dressed and handing out candy and the whole thing. But you know, he was fine.
4: There you go. Yeah. Well, it's good. He got through it's good it. Good for him. He got through it. Yeah. Good for him. All right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, Stephen. How did your Halloween go? I feel bad. I didn't even ask you. Your kids have fun. Did your house get invaded like ours? I don't know what happened.
0: Uh, yeah, no invasions that I know of. Uh, but yeah, nothing. The ring didn't pick up anything, so that was a good sign. Uh, the kids had a great time. Uh, you know, I was just walking around with uh, my family, my mom, my dad, and my wife, and my uh, sister-in-law, brother-in-law, and their kids. So it was a real good time. You know, had by all. And uh, I'm not. I'm not the biggest Halloween guy, so I'm not dressed up. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, I mean, it's not not a surprise. I'm like your dad, like I, you know. Please tell me what it's about. Like I don't get it either. So uh, I think we would get along. So because of that, you know, I we just I just walked around and uh, was just talking. So it was a good time. Our nine-year-old said
4: it's her favorite holiday, and yeah. I was like, "Why? I know. Like it doesn't beat Christmas? Christmas? What's your favorite holiday, Stephen?
1: Yeah, it got to be Christmas." Uh, I like valent. Well, I like oh, Valentine's Day. Oh, Valentine's Day. But actually, I really <laughs> like Thanksgiving, just because I like Uh-oh. I don't food and gratitude. But isn't
0: Thanksgiving like a, just a lesser Christmas?
1: No, Christmas, it's better than Christmas. Christmas without gifts. It's less stressful yeah. than Christmas. Because
0: yeah. I mean, usually you get a great dinner at Christmas as well, and then you get gifts on top of it.
4: Well, I like Christmas. That's my favorite. Um, I also think um, the Halloween. We had this Halloween, whatever, you know, every Halloween in America, we get this same thing nowadays with all these doorbell cameras and everybody's got a camera. I don't know. Did you guys see the video of the family, the three ladies who cleaned out the bowl of candy bars? (laughs) So there's this giant bowl of candy bars. It's in Texas. Okay. And these three ladies and their two kids come upon it and says, take one. And the three ladies are caught on camera just absolutely raiding the bowl. They took every last bit of candy out of the bowl for themselves and then the sad part was kids came after (laughs) and the bowl was empty
1: yeah
4: uh and then a little boy and a lady come up later they see the bowl's empty and the boy takes he takes his own bag of candy and puts some of it into the bowl yeah so there's a nice little part two to that Mm -hmm. but who's taking the whole bowl of candy i thought you were gonna say the
0: little boy took the bowl
1: (laughs) On
0: his
4: head and walked away. Yeah.
1: No so candy and take the bowl. Us, he wanted to give us some faith in humanity there. For Who's taking
4: the damn candy out of the bowl? I don't know. you got
1: to figure if they're taking up. that candy, they really need it.
4: You right? just,
0: John, you just said you searched the house like a crackhead looking for candy. Yeah,
4: Was but they, I'm not yeah. taking other kids. That candy didn't belong to those ladies. Yeah. The, ki- the candy bars over here—they're mine. Damn it!
0: Mm. Are they? Aren't <laughs> they,
4: they your belong kid- to me? The kids? No, no, because the kids got their own, and they're labeled as such. Oh, in a yeah. Ziploc bag, carefully labeled. Yeah, I looked at those too. And in a
1: lockbox. I don't take don't their candy, me, dietitians.
4: I don't take. I don't go into their piggy banks.
1: Okay, but <laughs> well, sometimes I. I, I, you I need just some
0: cash. I mean,
4: yeah,
1: you yeah, know, <laughs> <laughs> the kids—they're the only ones with cash around. It does a good yeah, job
5: of hiding this stuff. Nowadays.
4: Hides it and hides yeah. it, but I, who takes the candy? Like, uh, like that's so wrong in in our neighborhood. Yeah, I ha- there was this great moment. We were going door to door with our kids. Yeah, there was these two boys that were middle school aged that came kind of. They were moving faster than us, and they came upon us, and they kind of were with us for like two houses, mm-hmm. and. One of the boys would go to the door, and the second kid would stand back. Steven, he wasn't going up and getting candy. He was in a costume. He had a bag. But his friend would get candy, and he wouldn't. And so at the second house, I said, aren't you going to go up there? And he said, I already went to this house. Yes. I looked him in the eye. He was dressed as a bank robber. I looked him in the eye, and I said, you are a good person, and you've been raised right. Those ladies who stole all that candy? Bad. Bad. Shame, shame, shame! Horrible human being. True colors come out at Halloween. Do you you take one or not?
0: Figure out who you are. It's a big. It's the best job interview you could ever give to somebody. Mm. Put them on a camera. That's a good interview question. Have you ever stolen more than one candy bar at Halloween? What do you do? The kid said, "I've already been to that house. He's dressed in a
1: costume." I know. I've never stolen candy. I've had my candy swole- stolen. Like, I remember in seventh grade walking around with my pillowcase. And by the way, whatever happened is just using a pillowcase. That's what we always did. And uh, I remember just walking around with my friends and having my whole bag just swiped by some older kid who took off with it. Grabbed
4: your bag and Grabbed ran? Grabbed my
1: bag and ran. Yeah. How about that?
4: Whoa, that's sad.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm going
4: to get you a bag of candy.
1: Oh, thanks. you got to find it 1st
4: going to replace it. All right. <laughs> Leave it here. We have more ahead. <laughs>
3: You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Kinzana on 750 The Game.
4: Some interesting uh, developments in uh, the Timbers world. Apparently, um... The Timbers are zeroing in on a potential hire for their next coach or manager or whatever you want to call the person who is in charge on the sideline. Um, The person that is reportedly at the top of the list is a former Manchester United football captain or soccer captain uh, named Phil Neville. And... You know, I have read all about, I'm no expert on soccer, but I read all about his accolades, the teams he's coached. He seems like, from a soccer standpoint, that he is more than qualified. But there is some discomfort with Philip Neville, and the Timbers Army is leading the way on that. The Timbers Army is urging the Timbers to reconsider this potential hire and reevaluate other candidates before finalizing a contract. I'm just going to read the statement from the Timbers Army, and then I'm going to tell you some of the discomfort. Okay, The statement is, the Portland Timbers are currently rebuilding a team on the pitch in addition to their ongoing efforts to rebuild trust with their fans in the community. We are deeply disappointed that the club is reportedly settled on a finalist for head coach who has a history of sexist public statements that run counter to our ethos as a club, city, and supporter group. And who also lacks a proven track record as a manager, we urge the Timbers to reconsider this hire and reevaluate other candidates before finalizing a contract. Signed by the Timbers Army Steering Committee, and a couple members of the Timbers Army have reached out to me, and they have shared with me tweets that Philip Neville has tweeted from his Twitter account um, on July the first, twenty eleven, long time ago. He tweeted, "Relax, I'm back, chilled." Just battered the wife. I feel better now. What? Yep.
1: <laughs> what? Okay.
4: A uh, couple months after that, he tweeted, <laughs> when I said morning men, I thought women would have been busy preparing breakfast, getting kids ready, making the beds. Sorry, morning women.
1: Uh-huh. Okay.
4: He also tweeted, it looks like to uh, his sister, Tracy. Uh She tweeted at him and said, bring your purse tonight, I lost my wallet. Uh, Nearly as bad as my millionaire brother asking me to go Dutch at a meal. He replied, you women always wanted equality until it comes to paying the bills. Oh, boy. Given the Timbers' history...
1: (laughs) Couldn't they find anyone who didn't have a series of uh, these kind of tweets yeah even even jokingly yeah. oh man all right yeah okay
4: um, like
1: they search the world and you know for the best hire for their next coach I, and this is who they settled on i
4: gotta i just am,
1: I, i'm scratching my head here What's, it, what
4: it, i i don't i just don't get it maybe they're just, maybe the timbers are just that stupid I don't know. Maybe they just are interviewing this person. Maybe it's you know, but the news reports are that they are in the final stages. Okay. So let's see. Let's see if the let's see how if the timbers are as tone deaf as they appear right now.
1: Like I could even make the argument like if okay, let's say <laughs> benefit of the doubt the guy is not you know sexist or misogynistic and he just has a bad sense of humor but even then then you have to then you discuss whether he has good judgment because you are on a public social media profile cracking these kind of jokes and if you even if you look at it from the light of he was just joking that's not who he is and that's not who his character is. You know, you have to question. Okay, what kind of judgment do you have to make those kind of jokes in a public forum?
4: Yeah, it's bad. It's it's just a, it's a bad look. It shows the fact that like some Yahoo on social media could find uh, those tweets and the team didn't look at it. Is uh, is bad? Now, so. N-
0: Neville he has claimed that the uh, battered the wife comment was about mm-hmm. beating her at table tennis. Hmm. That was his, okay. That was his excuse. I mean, okay. that's what he said.
1: What's your take on that, Stephen? Because it's uh, kind of like, look, y- you know, I give people a lot of leeway when it comes to cracking jokes. You know, for myself personally, I am the least, you know, the hardest person to offend. Yeah, you're
4: not easily. Offended. I'm really not. You're married
0: to me,
1: right? Right. right. Exhibit A. So, but what's your take on this, Stephen? I'm just curious.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not offended by a lot of things, but I think you look at just what has been, what has transpired with the Timbers in the last you know so, so odd years, and this kind of stuff. Like you have to, you're tone deaf if you really think like this is the right guy, even if he's the best candidate out there. You can't bring that guy in. It's just like that's just not okay to do that to have those type of tweets and have. Um, you know the history that the Timbers have, and then you think it's okay to bring in someone that makes these type of comments, no matter how old they are. Like, that's you know, I always think like when people say words, especially in a public forum like that, like that's down deep in their soul somewhere. Like they, you know, they, yeah. they it it doesn't just come out. Like, you don't tweet that on accident if you don't actually believe something like that, right? And so I feel like when you're saying things like that, there is some type of belief that you have in that situation. Just like Chris Broussard the other day. On TV, he uh, he said the R word, which that is one of the words that actually offends me. I really dislike that word, Um, and it's like, even though like he said he has family members that you know is mentally challenged, like it bothers me. Like the the fact that even you just throw that word around so easily. So when he tweets those type of things out, I have to believe there's some type of belief in that that he has that deep down.
1: Like, and there's room and like for me, there's room when like you see a stand-up comedian cracking jokes like there's a completely different forum when it comes to satire when people are cracking jokes and, and so you can say, oh you know you're hypocritical if you can accept it if there's a comedian saying it, why can't you accept it when a potential you know soccer coach for the Timbers is saying it and but I, I just it's it goes back to like time place, environment, the choices that you would make, you know, like I'm even willing to, like I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that he doesn't think poorly of women, that he doesn't actually think that, you know, women aren't watching cricket on television because they're busy preparing breakfast and getting kids ready and making beds. But there's
0: so they, many, there's yeah. so many other things that they could, he could have said besides that joke. Like that's just not, a, it's not even a funny joke. And so I, I don't know. Like there's ways to insult people without making it mean and know that you're joking those type of things it doesn't sound like you're joking
4: it just it, it, and here's but here's the other thing too the, the ownership of the timbers knows the context of what happened with the thorns understands that there is a erosion of the trust between the fan base and the organization this cannot be your next move it can't be <laughs> you had better google and check this person's twitter timeline he told the guardian a few years ago he knew the tweets were wrong this is what he said here's his quote he said the tweets were wrong then and wrong now okay okay doesn't you that's in you that's that's what you tweeted That's who you are. But it wasn't
1: even that hard to find is the thing. Like, this was not something that some internet sleuth dug up. This was a Washington Post story in 2018 that talked about him deleting his Twitter account and apologizing for these tweets, and that was shortly after he was hired to coach the England women's national team. Yeah. So it's like, just... Oh god! Okay, I'm exhausted. I can't even talk yeah. about
4: it anymore. Uh, you you
0: can't you, you can't possibly be, be that tone deaf, can you? You know, it's uh, like it's bad judgment by the coach, but it's bad judgment by the Timbers if they actually think like this is the best way to go about
4: it. Yeah, bad. Yeah, bad judgment all the way around. Um, really disappointed in that. Five at five's coming up. Anna's. Are you are you fired up for the five at five?
1: I can. I got to build myself up yeah. now because like just Bring some happy uh, the story, stupidity Anna. of this yeah. is. Getting yep. at
4: me. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh coming up the five at five. <laughs> good the good transition there, guys. All right. <laughs> Dude, I, just a seamless segue. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> we're real pros here. Did I tell you we're gonna be a killer burger? <laughs> Did I mention that? Did I mention we're gonna be doing a remote on the seventeenth? And oh. we will be live. I hope you stop by. But the uh this manager guy, we don't want him there. I don't want him there. I, you know, you gotta, you gotta stand for something. Timbers, come on, for crying out loud! Show me you listen to the show. Listen to your conscience. Listen to your fan base. Listen to yourself. For crying out loud! Leave it here.
3: B F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced
4: truth. You know, keep an eye on your sports franchises. They will tell you who they are in a variety of ways. They will reveal themselves. Watch them. Evaluate them. See who they hire, see how they do it, see how they treat their fan bases, how they treat their players, how they treat their coaches. They will tell you who they are. Maybe the Portland Timbers are just trying to tell us who they are. Maybe Merritt Paulson's trying to tell us who he is. Watch how he acts. watch, Watch how his franchises conduct themselves. See who he hires. That's fair, isn't it? I think that's the fairest way to treat anybody. Watch. They'll, they will reveal themselves. This hour, you're going to hear from Tom Wistersill. He's the commissioner of the Big Sky Conference. He'll be with us coming up at 5.24. We're going to talk about the Big Sky Conference. They got a couple of games this season on linear TV on ESPN. Portland State's game this weekend at UC Davis is on ESPN+. Plus. Bruce Barnum was all fired up, all kinds of fired up about Dan Hawkins, UC Davis coach, attending his game a couple of weeks ago as he played Idaho State. Hawkins sat behind the Portland State bench, watched him work. It's not like having a uh, secret spy on the sidelines or videotaping it, but uh, Bruce Barnum said he would have appreciated a phone call. Uh, I'll ask Worcester still about that, plus his game's coming up this weekend, plus he's on a whole bunch of committees, NCAA committees. We'll see uh, what that's all about and uh, find out what's happening in college athletics. Is there a trickle down to the Big Sky uh, Conference as you see realignment in major college football? Anna's here. She's got the 5 at 5 ready. She is all kinds of fired up about it, whether she will admit it or not. I am ready. I've got the numbers 1 through 5 all queued up. And we're going to begin the 5 at 5.
3: The 5 at 5. Number
1: 1. Colorado making a change on its uh, offensive coaching staff for this weekend's game against Oregon State. The Buffalo's play calling duties will be taken over by quality control analyst Pat Shermer. Uh, offensive coordinator Sean Lewis, according to multiple reports, will be kind of demoted He's, to yeah, co-offensive totally. coordinator along with Lewis. And um, this is getting a lot of talk nationally, especially because Lewis is widely regarded well uh, and has you know, a potential future as a Power 5 head coach.
4: Coach Prime not happy with the offensive line. He said it this week.
5: I believe in the staff that we have on hand, I believe in the staff that, that they can do it. And I have the utmost uh, of faith in them. Also, I had a private personal meeting with the whole offensive line, and the meeting was phenomenal. I have uh, the utmost thought process that those guys are going to step it up tremendously, and you're going to see more cohesive, more aggressive, more physical, more prepared group than ever before this weekend. I really do believe that.
4: Coach Prime demoting Sean Lewis, highly compensated head offensive coach of the Colorado football team. Is this good for Oregon State or bad for Oregon State? I can't quite figure it out. Because if you're Jonathan Smith, you knew what to prepare for all week. And here we are on Friday, and now he's got to go talk to somebody, hey, what is Pat Shermer going to call plays like? How different will that be from Sean Lewis? Also, though there's some discord, obviously within that coaching staff, we say, we've seen players and coaches arguing on the sideline. A lot of finger pointing going on. It now looks like it's extending to the coaching staff at Colorado. You know anything more about this, Anna? You got any more deets on that?
1: Um, just that there was a lot of outcry because his hiring of Sean Lewis in the offseason um, was considered to be, you know, a success, like a notable hire. And so there's coaches like chiming in across the country that are saying that this is a strange decision. Um, and uh, just that he has, he has a really good reputation. He was at Kent State yep. and did a great job there and left the head job there to go join Colorado.
4: He's not the problem. Sean Lewis is not the problem. He's a really good offensive coach. Charles Kelly, the defensive coordinator, he's safe for now. We'll see. I think uh, Coach Prime's frustrated. And Wilner brought it up earlier, and I think this is a good time to revisit it. Like, like Barry Bonds was a batting instructor in the Giants organization. Barry Bonds hit a bazillion home runs, sea ball, hit ball. Might be the greatest hitter of all time. He had a hard time coaching hitting. In the same way that I think Michael Jordan had a hard time putting together an NBA team because he was like, damn it, just go out and do it. You know, hit the ball. Make the basket. Just dunk on him. You know, what's wrong with you? Because it came so naturally to them. Maybe uh, Coach Prime going through a little bit of that, that he can't be on the field doing everything, and his impulse is probably to be out there and just do it, just get it done. I was told before the season that Colorado would have problems because they didn't have the guys on the offensive and defensive lines. That that, you know, And I, one coach in the Pac-12 said he doesn't know what he doesn't know when it comes to that level. Arizona State's Kenny Dillingham told me right before the season, I said to Kenny Dillingham, do you have the guys? And he said, we're going to find out. I don't know. Turns out Arizona State really doesn't have the offensive line to be that competitive this year. I think it's a growth process. Maybe he'll recruit better, bigger, more physical players. But at this point, he, uh, changing the coordinator, I don't think is going to change the fate of Colorado. It sounds like a dad who's frustrated that his kid's getting I sacked. I was
1: just going to say that. How much of this do you think has to do with <laughs> conversations he's having with his son who's getting sacked and just knocked around? had every seven game. times
4: UCLA sacked him last week.
0: But can't doesn't Shador know it's not Sean Lewis's fault?
1: Like he can't I don't see know. that.
4: I don't know. I think when you're in the middle of it, sometimes it's so you're, easy, no, easier. You're grasping.
1: You're grasping yeah. for a solution.
4: You blame the offensive line. You blame the offensive coordinator. The equipment guy's got to be terrified. He'll be next
0: because he's definitely not blaming Shador, I can tell you that. Yeah,
4: yeah. Not Shador's fault for holding the ball too long. He which he does. He holds the ball too long.
0: Number two.
1: Um, Speaking of compensation, uh, linebacker Micah Parsons with the Cowboys had some interesting things to say. Um, As Raiders' Josh McDaniels, head coach, was fired on Tuesday, we all heard about how the Raiders are still obligated to pay him the rest of his contract, which runs through the 2027 season. That means they'll be paying him more than $40 million Wow, in the next four years so he's getting that money even though he got fired from his job now Micah Parsons noted on Twitter he calls coaching contracts a scam because basically he's saying that players have been trying to get fully guaranteed contracts but if it's nearly impossible so if they get fired or cut they usually don't get any of the remaining money in the contract Unless they're lucky enough to have their salary guaranteed, um, since free agency started in '94, only one player has been able to land a substantial, fully guaranteed contract, and that is Deshaun Watson, five-year deal, two hundred thirty million. What do you think about that?
4: Deshaun Watson has one of the five worst contracts in the NFL right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> ten games into his tenure. Fully guaranteed two hundred thirty million dollar contract looks like a bust. <laughs> I, the fully guaranteed contracts are great for players, but they're part of what's wrong in the NBA. The fully guaranteed contract is sticks teams with players who have bad deals. All the contracts are speculative. Ham the teams are hamstrung. Guaranteed contracts are a problem in the NBA.
1: Now you have a player. You have Cowboys players saying that it's a scam that players can't get them.
4: Yeah, it's a scam. It's a scam because it would be highly advantageous to the players. Guess what? We're all working on non-guaranteed contracts in the real world. And that's
0: that's why there's so much parody in the NFL because they're non-guaranteed contracts. You just get rid of somebody. We're in the NBA. You sign a bad contract to a team, and you can't get rid of the guy. And so you're stuck with a guy for four or five years, and you can't just get rid of him. The NFL, you just cut him and then say, yeah, we're going to cut bait on you.
4: And, in the, and the Browns can't move on from Deshaun Watson without destroying their salary cap because of the contract's guaranteed. So, you know, they've... Yeah. I, look, the market doesn't lie. I'm a big believer the market doesn't lie. You're worth what somebody's willing to pay for you. Except in the NBA, you're worth what somebody thinks you might do it if you have your best year. And that's kind of how the NBA works. It's highly speculative. The Players Association has all the control The NFL, look, let's not let's not plead like the players, you know, aren't aware of this and that they're not there's provisions that aren't taken to account for that. Like a lot of the players have contracts that they sign that have big signing bonuses that take care of them up front. They have some years guaranteed. But, you know. What, you're looking at me like you think it's wrong.
1: No, I'm not. I'm just looking at you. Do you (laughs) agree? I'm that's, really that's just, your look yes. that's your face oh my gosh welcome to our marriage everyone this is just her face <laughs> why are that's you giving just me a look my, it's just my why? face what did i do stop it
4: <laughs> do you think <laughs> I had, what do you think like look i gotta be honest with you like fully guaranteed contract if you can negotiate it as five players have good for you mm-hmm. you know the market doesn't lie if you're such a good player that you can negotiate it Go get it. I just think it's a really bad precedent if you start handing out fully guaranteed contracts to all the players, and you end up like the NBA. It's just not. It's it's not right. You know, it's not right. Within reason, like NBA player gets hurt, they are covered. Mm-hmm. They're covered. They can't. You get hurt in the NFL. You get hurt in the NFL. They can't just cut you and say you're hurt. You can't play. So you're no good to us. Yeah. But if you can't perform at a level that that, you know, helps a team, they don't have a use for you. Guess what? That's kind of like every listener that's out there listening and their relationship with their employer. You know, should we all be guaranteed fully? You know? Do you think you get bad customer service now?
0: <laughs> Just wait.
1: <laughs> Number three. Uh, Nick Saban's been walking around with a bloody bright eye. Wasn't part of a Halloween costume. Uh, he <laughs> has admitted, he said initially he had no idea what was wrong. But then he found out that it was a wound in his eye that he got from yelling at his players. Like he popped a blood vessel in his eye and the doctor told him that you you basically got this from yelling you busted a blood (laughs) vessel in your eye from yelling too much
4: settle down this isn't like bob costas's red eye during the olympics right the pink eye thing
1: no yeah remember that had its like own twitter handle. that
4: thing made my eyes water
1: yeah Yeah, you can't no. have that
4: on TV. No, this
1: looks pretty bad, too, though. Like, it's it's really red. It's not pink. It's, like, red. He blew it's a gasket. Bloody eye.
4: He, he blew a gasket. Blew a gasket. Yeah. No way around that.
1: What did his players do?
4: <laughs> I guess they're, uh, th- that's your body's way of saying settle down. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you, when you start to look like a cartoon character, you may want to take notice of that. You know what I mean? It's just, simmer down.
1: Number four. Oh, man. That's all we need is Adam Silver talking about what kind of underwear he's wearing. No!
4: Don't tell me the rest of this. Okay, go on.
1: (laughs) Well, the NBA has this new collab with Kim Kardashian and her Skims underwear brand. Mm -hmm. They did release wonderful photos of people like Nick Bosa sporting the underwear And the line did millions of dollars in sales in just minutes after the launch. But now Adam Silver is saying, like he's literally doing an interview today or yesterday and saying, I'm not going to show you, but I am wearing skims right now. And I strongly recommend them to everyone. (laughs) I'm good. That'll be the next part of the campaign. Adam Silver.
4: You know how they, they say if you're going to give a speech in front of a room, you should you know picture everyone in their underwear. People will say things like that. Yes. Like, when you're t- saying that, you said the name Adam Silver and underwear, and I could see him immediately in his tidy whities And then you said Kim Kardashian, and you said Bo- Nick Bosa. And I was seeing all these people in their underwear as you're doing it. Like, very visual. I'm very. I'm a very visual person, like I can see it. <laughs> I don't need that. Are, then you said millions of dollars, like millions. Are people that easily minutes. influenced by? Yes, you know,
1: that Kardashian brand is strong. With NBA fans, someone bought them. I don't know who bought them. Steam? Maybe it's women buying them for their men, because the women go, "Well, if I buy you these underwear, you'll look like Nick Bosa."
4: Steven, are you easily influenced? Like, when you heard this, did you feel like, hey, I need to get some of those? Steven, uh, what
1: are your greatest, strongest influences when it comes to buying underwear?
0: Uh, not Kim Kardashian or Adam Silver. I can confirm that I was not the person that bought the Skims underwear. I did not provide that.
4: Are they making boxer briefs? Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing? Yeah.
0: Did you see the picture of <laughs> Kardashian yes. and Adam Silver uh, together? Yes. In yeah. underwear? No. So strange. It was, no, they were just, you know, celebrating the, uh, the collab the it was yes. a very awkward-looking picture.
1: Oh yes, I'm not buying him. Yeah, because he looks like an alien. God bless him. And she's like five foot one, right? And they're they've got the book Brooklyn Bridge in the background. It's a very strange photo. You
4: know, uh, we've had Silver on this show. Mm-hmm. Do you think we need to get him back to talk ask, about underwear? Ask him no. about his uh, underpants.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear any more about it beyond it's this fight. Captain five. Underpants, Adam Silver, number five. All right. Do you want to hear about Travis Hunter's parking tickets? or uh, I do. Or Mark Zuckerberg's torn ACL?
4: I want to hear about the parking tickets.
1: Okay. So Colorado's Travis Hunter has um, a problem that a lot of us can relate to. Um, he's really frustrated dealing with too many parking tickets on campus. Um, he expressed his frustrations during a video clip Featuring the Buffalo's preparations for their matchup against Oregon State. He says, I need everybody at Colorado to see this. I'm tired of paying for parking. Can somebody help me pay $8 for two hours? How is that even possible? He adds that he's received a number of parking tickets on campus. Um, although, apparently, they haven't put a boot on that front tire. You know that boot yeah. that you can get? He drives a big truck.
4: I know he drives a truck. Yep. I I also went through, at his age, a phase with parking tickets. Mm-hmm. I had an issue at my college campus where, you know, I would park and there were one or two hour spots and my class was a one or two hour class. And I would have to hustle out and I would, you know, I'd get a ticket here or there or there and again there yep. and have to pay the tickets. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. I had a ticket one time. On my college campus, I think sometimes the ticket operator, like the officers who are giving these tickets in college campuses, come on. I had a ticket one time because I I was in a one-hour space, okay? Mm -hmm. I had a one-hour class. Right. I came back out, and I was going to move my car because I had another class. Right. And I got a ticket, and I just said, oh, hell, I've got a ticket. I'm going to leave it here. Uh Uh-oh. I got another ticket.
1: Of course you did.
4: How can they do that? Isn't that double jeopardy? (laughs) You just
1: violated it twice.
4: Yeah, but it's the it was a I'm there longer than an hour. Uh-huh. Every hour, I get a ticket. Yeah, that's how they treated it uh-huh. at my school.
1: But here's the question: Like, should you know Colorado football players get special permits for their players to park so they don't get these tickets? That's
4: a uh, extra benefit. NCAA violation. If if you're gonna give it to the pl- football players, you have to give it to all students. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So, but, if, but he could have an NIL deal
1: okay. where yeah, somebody's yeah.
4: picking up the tab for all the... Why doesn't he just have a parking permit? Why is he not in a...
1: Wait, your statement confuses me because, like, you know, football players and other athletes have their own, like, study area, buildings, like, entire buildings devoted to their academics at various universities. Yeah, they have early
4: enrollment, but you, you cannot... You also have a tutoring center for normal students. Okay. Regular students. I see. So it's... The, the somebody else. This is where it gets weird with NIL and the schools. Yeah. Somebody else can provide that benefit. Okay. Okay. Like through as an NIL deal, Travis yeah. Hunter can get a car, but the athletic department can't buy him a car.
1: Yeah, I get that.
4: So there's the distinction. Okay. But yes, there's a tutoring center on campus at the University of Oregon. It's made for athletes, extra you know helpers for athletes, but. The university has to be able to say, Hey, we also provide tutoring centers for normal ath- normal students. Here but it's are. like
1: but it's the city. Like it's a, a government entity that could issue that permit if, you know, the football team worked that out or something.
0: I don't know. Can't they get an NIL deal with like the tow company? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Travis Hunter has his car towed right to his classroom at the end of class. Yeah. You don't have to pay part, part, of, part of the problem is I like Travis Hunter and so I don't yeah. want him to get tickets. Yeah. I like the kid. Yeah. You know? it was a good interview on this show. Seems like he has the right attitude.
1: Uh-huh. He's a
4: fun guy. Forgave the guy. Cheap shot at him. <laughs> He's my favorite Colorado player. Okay.
1: Okay? Yeah. He's just got to figure out the parking situation. Maybe
4: I'll talk to him. I'm going to see him Saturday. hmm Ask him Say, about that. Hey, Let's talk about this parking situation. I had the same issue. Here's what I did. <laughs> um, all right. Anna's done. The 5 at 5 is over. Tom Wistersill is coming up, Big Sky Conference Commissioner. He'll join us momentarily.
3: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
4: Our next guest is Tom Wistersill. He is the commissioner. Of the Big Sky Conference, been talking a lot of Big Sky football this season with Bruce Barnum. The uh, Vikings are on the road this weekend. They are at UC Davis uh, four o'clock Saturday. The game will be on ESPN Plus. The Big Sky Conference has got some games on regular ESPN this season as well. still here to talk about it. How you doing? How's the football season going for you guys?
6: Boy, it's been a great season, John. Always fun to be with you. Just a couple of bald guys talking. So there we go. A good conversation as always.
4: Give me an idea um you know when you look at kind of your premier football games uh this year obviously you got teams at the top of the standings but what did it mean to you guys to have some games on ESPN and and, and that TV partnership.
6: You know it's a great partnership uh you know we've uh, we're in year 3 of that deal now and uh, for us to be able to showcase our teams uh on the linear network on ESPN 2 on Saturday nights has been really good, you know, I mean, I, I know people have talked for years about Pac-12 after dark, and so we've kind of decided it's now Big Sky after dark, so it's worked out great, um, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, we've got nationally competitive programs, four teams ranked in the top 10, and uh, so for us to showcase the talent level and the coaching and that of the Big Sky to a nationwide audience is huge, I've I told our presidents and ADs because sometimes they're like, oh, you know, we've got to start a game at, you know, 7.30 p.m. on a Saturday night in October. And I'm like, you just got to remember, you know, in the second half, every bar east of the Mississippi has that game on. And there's not many games on at, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock on the East Coast. But Big Sky football is on, and that's pretty special for us. So it's been a wonderful tool from a recruiting standpoint for the Big Sky.
4: Tom Wish are still with us. The um, trickle-down effect of realignment. Have you guys in the Big Sky felt any of the movement that's happening in major college football, in particular?
6: Well, we've you know had a lot of discussions about different things that that could happen to the Big Sky. You know, fortunately, we've been pretty stable. I mean, I, the one thing that's really good about our our programs, we have twelve schools in football, with two of ten full-time members, two affiliates with Davis and Polly, is. Our schools look a lot alike. They're public institutions, you know, a lot of them kind of regionally based. Um, we have some big schools with, with big, you know, state names and city names in them, but, um, but nonetheless, you know, kind of a regionally focused. So, you know, obviously we're watching closely what's going on with the Pac-12 and the Mountain West and kind of really anxious, just like you are, to see the way that kind of plays out here over the next few months. But, um, you know, I think the great thing about our schools is we know who we are, we're very proud of that, and uh, our goals are in front of us as we continue to grow as a conference and help our institutions along.
4: It used to be that the payday games that some of the uh, Big Sky members would get were around two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand. Then they started creeping towards four and five hundred thousand, and I saw one recently at six hundred fifty thousand. Is the market for games, you know, against Big Sky teams escalating? And I only frame it with rob mullins at oregon saying hey there's a really limited number of schools in the in the western part of the united states that we can play in non-conference games and not have to travel across the country to get do you get those games
6: yeah no you're exactly right it, it is escalating and that's a good thing obviously for everybody and we appreciate rob and he's a friend of mine and and uh and oregon and the other schools that schedule our teams and and we're fortunate though that the revenue has continued to increase you know expenses for these programs. You know when we, you know, I think they're just beginning to scratch the surface for like Washington and Oregon and, and some of the others that are going to have to travel across the country many times a year. So they have to start kind of watching their watching their budgets. So rather than paying you know Nevada 1.3 million to come to you know to come to um, to Oregon, they can pay you know Portland State 675, 700 something like that still get a good local opponent. The money stays in the state, and they can save a little bit of money that they're going to send all of those teams across the country. So we think there's some benefit there to us and our institutions, and it's something we've talked about as recently as a couple of weeks ago at our uh, athletic director's meetings.
4: The NIT decision recently, uh, the changes to the procedures and policies, don't seem that they're uh, favorable to conferences like the Big Sky or the Mac or some other places. What what do you make of that?
6: Uh, well, quite frankly, John, it's a real kick in the teeth to every one of our programs. That's the best way I can put it. You know, for, for that decision to happen a week before the season starts, you know, we look forward to that along with 26 other conferences. And, and you know, that was a decision made to protect six conferences and their interests and in, in the revenue piece. And you know what, I, I understand the decision um, and the impact financially of the future of the tournament, so so I can, I can understand that. You know, I'm a member of the Men's Basketball Selection Committee, so we talk about that stuff. But the timing of the decision is just really, really hard for us because you know we have such a competitive conference. When you come to Boise to our conference tournament, there's no guarantee that that champion from the regular season who, who played a really tough schedule and traveled you know, on commercial airlines all over the Western US secured the one seed. They don't have an easy road to win the championship and cut down the nets and go into the NCAA tournament. So so you know that that, you know, second if they finish second or if they don't make the finals, whatever, that opportunity to play in the NIT has been huge for us as a conference because we never when else would we get some of those games? Last year, Eastern Washington, number one seed, lost their first game of the conference tournament went to the NIT, and they won in Pullman at Washington State. That's a huge win for Eastern Washington. So it's just really disappointing for us to get those things taken away. And then, like I said, for it to happen the week before the game goes, there's really no excuse on the timing. And uh, myself, along with 26, uh, 25 other commissioners, are very disappointed in that.
4: A lot of the decisions that we're seeing made um, in the name of revenue – fly in the face of the mission of higher education and this is this is an example of it how do you protect that element or that mission in higher education in a world in athletics now that is fueled by tv money and ambition
6: it's a really really good question ron john really good uh good um discussion point right there and uh, quite frankly i'm not sure you can you know it used to be that you know when we talked about APR and graduation rates, and and uh, you know, and we 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 try to have some accountability to you know to the student athletes as well as the athletic departments to, to help help these young men and women graduate. And when you continually you know chase the money, um, like many in college athletics has done, and uh, and I don't begrudge them for their decisions, but but it is kind of hard to defend. Um, when, you know, a lot of the decisions don't make sense other than financially. And uh, so, you know, I, I'm a little afraid uh, of what the future of college athletics looks like five, ten years from now and, and what happens there because we have kind of lost our way. And you don't hear people talking about, hey, look at all the student-athletes we're graduating and, and look at the opportunities we're providing them to grow as as young men and women. And, and that gets lost in this uh, the chase for the almighty dollar, and uh, to win that national championship in the CFB. And so, like I said, it's hard to defend uh, it. Uh, you know, now I say that also, knowing that when I go to campus and I see our student athletes, and I get a chance to interact with them, you know, the future is really bright for us. We got great people, great young men and women that are competing and and graduating, and 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 good academically as well on our campuses. Um, but it is it is hard to defend when you're asking the you know the uh, the baseball team from the former Pac-12 schools to fly across the country and and I uh, saw the other day you know like Miami football is playing at Cal in a conference game next year <laughs> yeah. and yeah. I looked I looked it up and that's a 44-hour drive um, right for the, for the equipment truck so so I, I, there's a lot in my answer there but the bottom line is I think whenever you've decided to always chase the almighty dollar you're not going to end up in a really good position.
4: Tom Wister still with us, Big Sky Conference Commissioner. You are on the Division One Men's Basketball Committee. You recently had a meeting, I think just a couple of days ago, in Phoenix about this. What kinds of things are you guys talking about right now?
6: So we talked about a number of things from, uh, you know, beginning discussions as far as, you know, do we want to look at expanding the playoff bracket? And, you know, it was it was a good discussion, you know, and, we're long ways away from a decision there. So we talked about that. We talked about kind of verifying our selection procedures, uh, you know, as we go into the basketball season of knowing kind of what we're looking at. Uh, we toured the stadium where the final four will be and, and drove around throughout the other venues where, where different uh, uh, activities will be during the final four. So this is kind of the pre-visit to the final four we make every year. And, uh, and then we have good discussion. i you know, there's 12 of us on the, on the committee, all with different backgrounds, all care deeply about college basketball. And, you know, one of the great things besides the relationships you forge with these people, some of them I've known for 25, 30 years, but um, others I'm just kind of meeting through the process. But, you know, nobody wears any school gear. Everybody is just there as a member of the basketball committee and is hyper-focused on what's the best thing for Division One men's college basketball. And we talk about that all the time, of collectively as a group, how do we move this forward, and what's the correct route? So, uh, good, good day and a half of meetings down there in Phoenix, and uh, you know the season starts Monday, so everybody's pretty fired up.
4: All right, we're excited for a big weekend of football. I'm curious to see how Portland State plays at UC Davis. Uh, you got a big slate in the Big Sky all weekend. I, you know, I appreciate you coming on with us, Tom. And. We'll get you back on as uh, as the season unfolds.
6: Always happy to come on, John, and uh, good luck to you. And uh, keep up the great work. We'll talk to you soon.
4: All right, thank you. Tom Wistersill, he's the commissioner of the Big Sky Conference and a member of the uh, NCAA basketball committee. Stephen, he, agree- he agrees with you. You don't like the NIT changes either.
0: Yeah, no, I don't like it, especially the timing, like he said, was terrible. But I, I, I just think for these smaller schools and these smaller conferences – like getting to the NIT and playing a big time school, like you said, Eastern Washington played Washington State. Like that's a big game for them. You know, being a guy that went to Concordia when we played Oregon in the exhibition, like that's a big game for me. Even though they beat us, it's a game I want to play. So I'm with them, man. I, it's just bad timing. And I think it's just all about looking at the biggest schools and trying to get the most dollars out of it.
4: Yeah, I think that they're money hungry and they they will go after the NCAA tournament next. You be sure of this. This is a precursor to the Power Four trying to close the loop on at-large teams and automatic bid teams from small conferences. You better believe that they're going to come after the NCAA tournament field next. All right, leave it here. Some parting thoughts. Uh, I wrote about the general today. I'll close the loop on it next.
3: Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
4: For those of you who are reading me now at uh, you know that if you uh, have a free subscription or a paid subscription, when I write, you get it delivered immediately to your email inbox. It's in real time. It's waiting for you at your convenience. Um, I'm really enjoying the writing endeavor. I think I've talked a lot about that. Like for those of you out there who own small businesses or maybe you're self-employed, you know, you know the adrenaline rush of uh, working for yourself and going to work for yourself and batting on yourself. And the connection that readers have directly to me now is uh, wild. I love it. I love that the readers who are getting my daily writing can reply to it and comes right to me, uh, having good conversations. Uh, The comment section is really, um, I think, you know, I used to think the comment section at the newspaper was a cesspool, and it was. It was unmoderated. It was all anonymous. The people who are commenting and reading are people who want to be there and are engaged in it and are invested in it, and uh, a majority of them are using their real names, and I, I just love it. I love how much better that experience is for everybody, and there have been very few yahoos in the last, what, uh, 16 or 17 months or however long this thing has uh, been underway. I'm just blown away by it. I appreciate you if you're already subscribed. If you're not, check it out. You can go to johnkanzano.com and check that out. I wrote about Bobby Knight this morning. I told some stories about Knight on the radio show earlier this week and realized I still had more to say on the subject. And Anna had asked me, you know, what did I learn from Bobby Knight? And for people who don't know, I was 27 years old. It was really my first major beat I had worked at a couple of small newspapers in California, uh, small daily papers, and I was covering things like high school sports and community colleges and Little League games, and occasionally I would get to go sit in the press box at Candlestick Park, and I'd get to write about the 49ers. Like, you know, but I was writing at a paper like the Santa Cruz Sentinel. At had a circulation of like thirty five or 40,000 readers. Uh, it was well-read in the community that it was in. But largely, the stories I was telling in that region had to do with people who lived in that region. I, I was getting to go to Candlestick Park as a kind of a bonus, you know, on a Sunday, go cover a 49ers game. And and uh, one of the high schools in the region, Santa Cruz High School, had a terrific boys basketball coach, Pete Newell Jr. He was the son of Hall of Fame coach Pete Sr. Now, Pete Sr. had taken Cal to the national championship game in 1959 and had taken a Olympic team, U.S. team, to the gold medal in 1960 in Rome. And uh, Pete Newell was Bobby Knight's mentor. And it was fortunate for me because when I got the job, I had a couple of weeks notice before I was flying out to Indianapolis and then driving to Bloomington and covering Indiana basketball. I uh, had a couple of weeks to kind of prepare and pack up and get ready. And part of my preparation really became about finding out more about Bobby Knight. What was I getting myself into? And people may remember Bobby Knight as a guy who won three national championships you may remember uh, him throwing the chair on the court, you know, that unforgettable video scene, or him yelling at players, or, ch- or the stories about him choking a player, or you know just being a nightmare. And but at that time, all I knew is that this guy was really difficult, and he was high profile, and this was going to be a challenge, and this was my first beat. And frankly, I'll be honest with you, I had no idea what I was doing. I had never covered a beat. Uh, I had no example of it. I didn't know other than what I'd read in the paper. This is kind of like the flow of things. You write a preview to a game, then you cover the game and then maybe you write a feature story or you know maybe there's something to be written, you know on the off days. But I literally was going into it kind of,, um, you know, fake it till you make it, right? And didn't really figure out how to cover it until I was actually doing it. But part of the preparation was I reached out because I knew Pete Newell Jr. I asked if I could talk with Pete Newell Sr., who was Bobby's mentor. Now, the story goes that Newell Sr.'s wife, Florence, was particularly close to Bobby. The Newells had four sons, and I think three of them are in basketball, and one of them is an actuary, and uh, Roger. And so I had talked to all the Newell kids. I knew them, but um, Bobby was like the fifth son in that family. And the Newell children would tell me that Bobby would call the house at night, he would ask for Florence, not Pete Sr., and then he would talk on the phone for like an hour. And it was just like him checking in and him kind of having that anchoring or people that cared about him. And I found that really interesting because over the years what you found out is that Bobby Knight really alienated a lot of people around him, but he did not seem to alienate Pete Newell Sr., nor Florence, nor any of those kids. And so I... I reached out and I asked, can I talk to Pete Sr. and get some advice before I went out to cover Indiana, and I told this story earlier this week on radio, and I talked to him, and he talked all about, you know, why Knight was disciplined in the way he was, he had the background with West Point and Army, how loyal he was to his players, particularly long after they graduated, talked about each of the three national championship seasons and, you know, how Bobby was really upset because he won it in uh, 76-77, but... The prior year, 1975-76, he felt like he had the better team. They only lost one game that year. They were undefeated the next. Um, and Knight's, you know, Knight's regret was that he didn't go undefeated in both seasons. He had been beaten by Kentucky in a regional final that prior year. And so, I read "Season on the Brink," the John Feinstein book. It's fantastic, amazing book. I also uh, talked to Newell, and Newell told me, you know, at the end of our conversation, he says, when you get out there, I want you to ask Bobby, can you win in today's game with a back-to-the-basket center? And I remembered that word-for-word, and I showed up to the first news conference, and I got the microphone, and I was shaking. My voice was cracking, and I said, Coach Knight, can you win in today's game with a back-to-the-basket center? And Knight listened to the question, and then he peered out at me, kind of studying me. He had these unusual eyebrows. He had these eyebrows that were not—they um, weren't sort of even, and they were like specks. I, I described them today in in uh, in the column I wrote at johnconzano.com Is as if uh, you know God had thrown darts at his eyes and missed, and they were kind of haphazardly placed above his eyes. You know, it was just interesting. He's peering at me, and he and then he goes. Well, that's the best damn question of the day. I did not expect to come here and get such a good question from a media member. Hell, if I didn't know any better, I'd bet you didn't come up with that on your own. And essentially, Pete Knowles Sr. had blessed me by sending me out there. Uh, Bobby Knight died this week. He was 83. I, and I thought a lot about the time I spent on that beat that season. Um, Knight was a physically imposing person, 6'5", broad shoulders, white hair, Those eyebrows, you know, and he 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 put the riders in this uh, in these little tiny school desks in front of him, like students in a classroom. Uh, I really uh, mostly refused to sit in those chairs because I understood what was happening there. There was a dynamic that was at play, but Bobby Knight was complicated. He wasn't all good. He wasn't all bad. Like like maybe a lot of us, but I did expect to see folding chairs tossed and players terrified of him. But my memories of that season were mostly of a coach who was super demanding and intense and a really passionate teacher of the game and a guy who had no patience for nonsense. I can remember, you know, if you asked a bad question, if you asked a dumb question, he would let you know it. And I can remember one day asking him, he was going on and on about how his team, at that juncture of the season, it must have been midway through the season, was was doing a really good job of taking what they learned in practice and then applying it in games. And I said, Coach... Uh, Are you getting good transfer from practice to games? And and the last syllable went out of my mouth, and I was like, oh, gosh, he just said that, like, two questions ago. And he just stared at me, and he says, what the hell did I just say? (laughs) You know, that, and he was right. You know, he was right. Like, he could be intentionally difficult. He could be verbally abusive or kind, depending on the mood he was in. I saw him throw a clipboard. I've also seen him put his arms around players in, in tough moments. And, at, and one time after a game, you know, he sent two players who hadn't even played in the game to the news conference. It was a big bleep you to the media. He must have been mad about something. I can't even remember what it was about. But, you know, Feinstein did a great job in season A Season on the Brink capturing the essence of Bobby Knight. And if you haven't read the damn book, go read that book. But... I also have to point out, like, I learned a lot from Bobby Knight, and I didn't really do a good job earlier this week talking about kind of what I learned. You know, the best coaches who have ever coached are terrific teachers. They're also they're also imperfect in their own ways. I saw that, and I have seen that over the years with Chip Kelly and Mike Bilotti and Mike Riley and Maurice Cheeks and Nate McMillan. Coaches are all flawed. I mean, they're all trying to do the best, and they're all working with what tools they have. But I'll tell you, one of the things that I got and I learned from Bobby Knight is I learned to pay attention to detail. I learned never to turn off my tape recorder. I learned to judge people through my own experiences, not what I'd read or seen on television. It's part of the reason why... I don't like to read what others are writing or hear what others are saying about teams and players as much as I just kind of gather my own experience and then try to share that with my readers and my listeners. You know, Knight taught me how to deal with difficult people. He was difficult. You know, and on road trips, I made a habit of walking with the Indiana players that he had not sent to the news conference as they were walking to the bus. And sometimes I got nothing, just a conversation. And sometimes I got better quotes, and I really understood that over those months that I covered him in that season, I turned 27, 28 on that beat that season, that the best characters to write about are complex, they're flawed, they're occasionally misunderstood. I love reading Ernest Hemingway. It's my favorite. Bobby Knight could have been in an Ernest Hemingway book. He's real. He's authentic. Dead at the age of eighty-three. Probably not right for today's basketball game. Alienated people as much as he, as much as he won them over. And in the end, I think um, complicated figure, but also genuine and real. And if we're being real, I think a lot of coaches out there show us what they are with their public persona, or maybe uh, they're there to just sort of acquiesce to the players. But I think the best coaches are ones that have principles. They uh, care about their players after they're gone. They uh, coach them on and off the court. Bobby Knight did all of those things. I want you all to have a great weekend. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. I will catch you on Monday, big college football weekend. I can't wait to see how this goes this weekend. Ducks, Beavers, do you smell a 2-0 weekend for the teams of the state of Oregon? I do.